Welcome to the Late Night with Chalky podcast. I'm Jay Late Night Larson. And I'm Lyndon Chalky Cabellion. In each episode, we will be talking to different surfers and surf shops to learn more about them and their passion for surfing. We will be diving deep into their experiences as well as their involvement and contributions to their local communities. Be sure to check out our website and Instagram feed for updates on future shows. Thank you for your support, and we look forward to sharing these great stories with you. And now a word from our sponsors. Yes, we got sponsors. First up, Foo Wax. The best wax in the game. This stuff is so sticky and grippy, you'll never slip off your stick again. Ever. Ever. Again. So go to your local surf shop. And, and make sure they carry it. And if they don't, demand it. Demand it. You'll be stoked. Try it out. Our next sponsor, Bonsai Bowls. Oh. I know a lot of our listeners have, have had one of these, and if they haven't, they're going to now. They're missing out. They're missing out. It's a healthy, delicious, amazing, fresh acai bowl with tons of fruit and organic like ingredients. They've got five locations in Southern California. From Huntington to San Clemente and all in between. Two in Hawaii. Two in Hawaii for that, those on the North Shore. And, um, you know, come support these guys. They have amazing Asahi bowls and they support the West Coast board riders and a lot of the surf events up and down the coast. And they've made it a lot easier With to get them. They've got their own app now. That's right. Go to your app store and download Bonsai Bowl app and you can pre-order, pre-pay and just go pick up, cut, cut through the line. And for our listeners of the Late Night with Chalky podcast, you're going to get 15 off your next bowl. A 15% discount off yes. bonsai bowls. That's insane. Um, so make sure to mention the Late Night with Chalky podcast and you get 15% off That's at right. bonsai bowls. And one of our other favorite restaurants. Oh, Caliente, Caliente OC. Caliente Southwest.com. They offer healthy Mexican style food with local uh, organic ingredients. Family owned. Family owned. Their phone number is 949-515-0909. And our listeners get 15% off there as well. Yeah. So mention Late Night with Chalky Podcast and get 15% off at Caliente OC. And both these guys are great at catering events. So you could use them for a shop event, corporate event, birthday event, wedding, all of the above. They love to party. And last but not least, we are super stoked to welcome Olo Clip as a new sponsor of the Late Night with Chalky podcast. What is Oloclip? Uh, they make the original mobile lens system for your phone. So these can make clips that hold the lenses, the cases that are designed to make it really easy to get the clip on the phone. So check them out at oloclip.com. And for all the Late Night with Chalky podcast listeners, they get 10% off. That's, that's huge. Huge. So at checkout, the code is SURF10, that's S-U-R-F, the number 10, and you get 10% off Oloclip. And you guys gotta check check out our Instagram. We're gonna be posting pictures with these wide, in, wide lens uh, angles, uh, fish eye, all kinds of cool like photo options with your phone. And for you uh, rich dudes out there, like late night, they do make cl- uh, <laughs> lenses for iPhone 11s. What? What? Epic. Thank you, sponsors. Thank you. Friends and family, brothers and sisters, welcome to the Late Night with Chalky podcast. Welcome. We're sitting down with a surf industry veteran, pioneer, 
and one of the forefathers four, of the surf industry. Yeah. And argue with us all you want. <laughs> um, a sales rep to VP with 30 years plus experience <clears throat> and um, brand builder um, and just all around, you know, surf industry guru, Tom Holbrick. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks, guys. Um, A.K.A. Holby. 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 Nickname. Yep. And uh, don't know why I'm here, but I appreciate it. <laughs> um, it's nice to get me out of retirement to keep me in the loop here. Yeah. Um, it was great running into you at the uh, at Ruka. That was that was, that was amazing. A cool event. The thing that was very cool about it, I hadn't been to the Ruka headquarters, even with all the friends there, and and to see the merge of old and young, the old collector guys, yeah. and and to see Brophy so embracing of the whole thing, and I think yeah. he gets it and connecting the dots, which it was really fun. Yeah, really, it. really cool. For those that didn't know, last week was a um, surfboards and coffee. Yeah, it was yeah. a you know vintage surfboard collection club event, um, and they had boards from I mean the, the beginning as yeah. far as far back as people could find Six, and keep a 50s, board. Fifties, sixties, yeah. all the way to the eighties and yeah, yeah, that was fun. So before we get to the present day, Holby, let's talk about uh, the beginning. How, where'd you grow up? How'd you get into surfing? Um, I grew up uh, born in, in Newport and then moved to West LA when I, with my folks when, let's see, when I was about five and grew up in West Los Angeles and ended up going to school up there all the way through Palisade, Palisade, in the Palisades Junior High, Paul Revere. And then I ended up in, uh, in Carpinteria for high school. So uh, what was fun about it is I started surfing at, I think the first wave I rode locally was Sunset Boulevard, right, you know, in Santa Monica. Wow. Ooh, like that horrible. was, it's one of the worst things you could ever see these days. But that was, at low tide, you could actually surf it. And that's where we, we had a little crew and we all got into it. But luckily, um, my folks got me over to see my grand grandmother in Hawaii um, when I was about 11 and that was like the annual trip that is the catalyst we all have that catalyst that kind of gets you fired up so yeah. you go over there and surf real waves and learn and have fun on longboards and my dad actually started surfing when he was 55 when we'd go over and he'd only surf over there because it's um, warm and killer and he surfed for about 10 years <laughs> and we'd keep the board at, at grandma's over there and why and did it take him so long he really wasn't exposed to it. He grew up okay. in the East Coast. He was in World War II as a pilot. He did a bunch of stuff. And, you know, he and my mom were married, and he was a business guy. Yeah. And did then he, he kind of got hooked, and and it was really fun but to do that. And I remember driving around Hermosa Beach in the early days when you we went to the Weber shop and Greg Knoll and all that, trying to pick out a board. Wow. And I think his first board that he bought, we had no clue then, was a Mickey Dora Cat. Wow. And uh, we're just one. like, you know, I, I try to emulate it. I, I bought a couple afterwards in yeah. later years. but So your dad bought a board, not you. He bought a board okay. after I had mine. And, okay. and we used to wear a coat and tie when we went on the airplane to Hawaii, though. Awesome. That's just how it was. Yeah, yeah like, I remember. I didn't know any better, but my parents were like, no, you dress up when you go on the plane. Yeah. I'm like, okay. And then when you get there, it's it's even better, you know. But um, what island, Oahu? We're in Oahu. That's okay. where the family was, and um, so it's kind of the spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. 
crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. Oh, I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. Yeah, I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told, so I'm going to tell it. Broomgate, how a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word, Broomgate. My mom was there as a teenager hanging out, and uh, my grandmother was there way back. And so we had, it was good to go back and visit some of those places where they spent time too. Wow. So that was fun. And then, uh, but about 11 years old, I started surfing and then came back here and we had a really good little crew in West LA. Um, and we'd drive to Oxnard and Oxnard Shores and, you know, Port Wyneme in the old days. But otherwise it was pretty much at the Canyon when Wilkin Surfboards was getting going with Jay Riddle and the Topanga guys. And, you know, we'd surf right at the end of uh, Chautauqua, you know, and right by the lifeguard headquarters, you know, wow. the Baywatch, that was like, it used to break back then. Yeah. What changed? Um, what, it was kind of like the 54th Street of the old days. Yeah. You know, and then they had the landslide and the whole bottom changed literally mm -hmm. after that. After and now the there's a bunch of volleyball courts and tons of traffic and you never really see a rideable, rideable wave. Right. So that was, we were all forced to drive. Was there a lot of you in your current? There were probably five or six of us. You was know, was it friends that got you started, or or like all friends all that friends lived that, in the neighborhood? Yeah. And yeah, we'd pile in a VW Bug or whatever we had and see who's driving. And uh, but you had to you know, living yeah. in LA at it the was time. Longboards, right? Longboards. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember we all got really excited when we saw at Malibu one day we saw somebody riding the Corky Carroll Mini model for the first time. <laughs> Next thing you know, people we were all. I started trying to shape, and I remember hacking up a perfectly good Weber performer, making it into a shortboard, or so I thought. Wow. You know, so we went through that whole thing where you, you know, and then it, it graduated to round boards, round waves, like, you know, Greg Little type designs, big single fins, and, you know, the whole evolution. So it was really fun, and, and then getting... I was in junior lifeguards in Santa Monica, city of Santa Monica, and the surf culture there was pretty good. We had Bay Street, we had Dogtown going on right behind yeah. where I, I lifeguarded, and uh, Tom Zahn was one of my lieutenants, who's big paddler, was pretty much the man back then. And uh, so there's a lot of great surf influence. Rolf Ornes <clears throat> would be out in the water, Santa Monica. And I remember buying one of his used twin fins um, which was like, I couldn't believe, it was like getting on a skateboard wow. after growing right. up. I'll never Game forget changer. that. Game changer. And uh, so it was really thing. fun. Oh yeah, I'd, I'd, probably five or six feet long. And wow. Small. 
yeah, really small. It was 10 to 12 feet. Oh, gosh, yeah. So we went through the whole phase, and, you know, it was really fun to see that evolution. And, you know, at that time, you'd go surfing in different places, especially Malibu. And so many good ways up there. You would see a lot of the people you're seeing in the mags, and yeah. you're just like, wow. Because there wasn't really a lot of surfers then, right? There, I mean, in L.A., there are a lot of people around. Okay. You, you, Manhattan Beach and Hermosa, there's such a culture there. So it was fun to grow up and see all that, too, and... and but really, the first surf trip was really going to Hawaii once a year. Like, that was so special. Yeah. And uh, going to Kauai in the early days, um, that was a whole other story, too. Yeah. Just so, you just get it in your blood over there. You yeah. Know? And it's pretty special. And uh, <clears throat> meeting Titus's uncle way back. Yeah. He was the beach boy, a guy named Percy Kahinimaka. And he was the beach boy at the Kauai surf in the old days, in the 60s. And that was the job. Yeah. Yes. He was in the movie, um, the book uh, Hawaii by James Mishner. He mm. was actually starred in it and played one of the Hawaiians. I mean, he was like celebrity status. And, and that's uh, the picture over there, right? Yeah. Okay. And uh, he was a great influence over there, too, and pretty special guy. Um, <clears throat> but again, getting to learn our way around there was, well, we were really fortunate, yeah. too. That's so. lucky, lucky to be able to. You know, experience Hawaii at such an early age. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And yeah. seeing what is out there and, and be like, and have the opportunity to go back. Yeah. Is that you I mean how much, how much better is it when you're in board shorts or just short surfing waves? Yeah. Instead of being in California. <laughs> yeah. Hey, but we were hey we were the in the Howley areas. So yeah. We didn't penetrate too much, and and it was all good, and people were, it was great back then. It was really special. So other than that, then I ended up in, um, in high school in, in Carpinteria, which was a treat too, a really small school in the hills and um, 150 students. And, and one of the things we could do is literally look from our campus and see the waves breaking at, at the outer reef off Car Carpinteria. Wow. wow. And Sick. we had teachers that would take us down to Rincon after class, drop us off in a cattle truck. and. Uh, and you'd have to hitch a ride back and figure it out. Um, and hey, Greeno might be in his old Highway Patrol cruiser, um, <laughs> and you could talk him into giving you a lift back to Casitas Pass, and, and then you'd hitch back to school for so there. George Greeno? Yeah, and uh, he'd be you out, a, and you, all the hitchhike a ride with him. Yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> he was there a lot, and to watch somebody go faster on a raft than anybody on a surfboard was insane he was a regular there he was he was just amazing on watching him ride a wave yeah and then the wilderness board started you know with the round bottoms yeah. and you know and growing up watching everybody from jeff hackman the first time i ever saw him to nat young to all those guys would come to rincon when it was good yeah so december 69 i remember vividly going to the headmaster and saying hey this is really big out there like I can we can see it so there any way I can get out of school today <laughs> and for whatever reason I guess I was a good enough student he understood I think there are only 11 of us that surfed at the school and he let me go awesome. and I remember that was big Wednesday and paddling out of Rincon and there was I think the first set I timed was like 17 minutes and then there was the lull and it was insane. I made it out after a long paddle, but 
the waves were so big it was pushing into the coast highway. Wow. And that's when it flooded down by Maria's and all that stuff. And but it hey, it left a lasting impression, you yeah. know. And uh, but being able to grow up there with Al Merrick and the whole crew and Roger Nance and all those kinds of guys yeah. and seeing the Santa Barbara influence on, you know, what it did for somebody like Tom Curran. <laughs> we oh, used yeah. to hand we used to give him Quicksilver board shorts, right? And, this little Grom was just ripping, but you saw what Al did to train his team up there. Yeah. And he had this quiet little society that he was just grooming these guys. Yeah. And uh, it was really fun to kind of just watch all that happen. So being in CARP for four or five years was pretty special. Yeah, it's, it's special. incredible up there. I just wish it was more consistent, yeah. you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but back then... It's no, a track. Yeah, it's not I mean, a crazy it is, track, but it's a track. You, you know, you leave early, it doesn't matter. But yeah. <laughs> but it's all about the traffic now. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's still special when you get the right day, but if you know where to go. But all the other spots, Stanley's Diner was still there. Um, Carp Point, there's, you know, Bonnie Mead, all those Miramar, you know, all the little ones kind of hidden around too. There's a lot of gems up there yeah. that are still pretty fun. Did you guys have like a local like surf shop you guys kind of <clears throat> hung out at? And... There really wasn't much back then. Yeah. I mean, at the town when we were in high school, there was a Dairy Queen, a gas station and a bank <laughs> and a pizza place and a Safeway. And that was yeah. about it. Wow. Now Matt Moore's son's got a shop down there and all that, but he actually has a coffee bar, which is very cool. Yeah. Um, but other than that, no, their beach house was really the first one around up there yeah. in Santa Barbara, you know, and they had Yater and all the, yeah. all the guys working out of there. So that was cool. But the Santa Barbara place was really special. Then after, after being up there, I ended up at UCI and, uh, lo and behold, I found out that there was an intercollegiate surfing community. So UCSB, Golden West College, uh, there were a bunch of schools that were involved, and lo and behold, we got state money yeah. to compete against each other. So somehow I was able to lead lead that group, and I remember, you know, we'd go up and surf against UCSB, and we had a whole crew, and we had a budget to stay in Motel Six, and yeah, budget wow. for gas and carpets. not everybody behaved at night, but um, it was really fun, and you know, that's where I ran into Bob because he was on the. McKnight, he was on the USC team, of course. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, it was that was really a fun adventure. And the, the region shot that down after a couple of years, though. Oh. Um, but it was pretty funny going down 405 with, it said official use only state vehicles, and we had boards strapped on. What's funny is Wally yeah. from Val. Val, right. Did you compete against him back in the day? I don't remember specifically, but yeah, he was there. He yeah. was involved. Because he was lot telling people, us how he, they, they, they pay for gas. Like a, car. a Lincoln Continental. Yeah. <laughs> like a green Lincoln Continental, you know, they yeah. drive, drive up and down the coast. Yeah. To compete against all the other colleges. Did, they, did you get any uh, like uh, college credits for, for it? Or was you this actually, more... No, it was really just a, a sport. A sport, you know, yeah. but they But they gave us a budget for a while, and it was super cool. Yeah. UCI was a little progressive because they really didn't have a football team. Yeah. They didn't. They had like clubs. Yeah. It wasn't big enough to field anything, but yet they had this really strong art department and all that. What and were you, uh... Uh, I was an art major and physical okay. physical science minor. Okay. So and what um, were you hoping to do with that? I thought I was going to be maybe dentistry or whatever, but you know, I you're taking low temperature physics and you're like. 
really? What for? But it was really interesting. You yeah. know, the guy won a Nobel Prize that was our teacher. So you're like, hey, that's pretty cool. And then we were taking a lot of art classes that at the time they were probably the most progressive art faculty in the country. And they were showing in all the best museums and the same thing that that same third year they came in and kind of cleaned out the barn. Um, it got a little more traditional, but for a while it was, it was really great. Mm. It was a good school. Nice. Awesome. What did your, if you don't ask, mind us asking, what did, what did your parents do? Oh, my, <clears throat> my dad worked for uh, North American Aviation, which became Rockwell International. Got it. Um, and then... Um, Engineer? He was in uh, HR personnel, okay. and um, so it was fun. Um, and then I ended up at UCI um, for school, and as I said, but when my dad was working at, at Rockwell, I remember doing a project on designing a board and doing some different things. And he goes, hey, you want to go climb on this B-1 bomber mock-up down by the airport? It's top secret. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> wow. So it was really neat to kind of see a little bit of that world too. But, um, you know, so I was really an art major, didn't know what I was going to do. And next thing I know is working at the cannery through some friends that were awesome working there. And God, I haven't been there forever. at the time, that, that was like the melting pot. And uh, I walked in on a Sunday and interviewed with the bar manager. And he said, can you start today? You're kidding. And uh, yeah, so that that was it. That was that was destiny. And, and at the time, there was a Jamaican steel drum band playing. And those guys were out of control, like, they had drinks nobody ever heard of. They were drinking <laughs> scotch and milk. Oh my and, gosh, that sounds you know, disgusting. Coke, rum and Coke was nothing. Yeah. Know, but the place would go off on Sundays. Yeah. And it was so much fun. And then there was a really good crew of people working there. And again, that's where I met Bob. And you uh, there too? I met my wife. Oh, wow. And uh, so the cannery has a lot of uh, history, great though. memories, yeah. a lot of history. And uh, it was really fun at the time. So I was where I started helping Bob and Jeff out and they had just gotten the, the rights to do Quicksilver in the USA. And that was probably 76, 77. That's so incredible. And you guys were still in college or like? Yeah, I just I just graduated and and they said, hey, do you want to pedal these board shorts, you know? For us around, you know, and we have well, a few of the surf shops. Like friends and surfing together. Yeah, or? so we, yeah, we knew each other and we're surfing. And Bob had given, you know, Bob and Jeff had, had given me shorts, and and uh, everybody was pretty into it. We're like, wow, these are cool. No yeah. liner, Velcro and snaps. Like, what's the deal? Yeah. And um, you know, they were more expensive than anything else, of course, but they're really unique. So we so all was, would surf together and hang Bob out. Bob and Jeff Hackman. Yeah. Yeah, and, and Jeff they, Hackman was already yeah. big time, right? Well, Jeff had already gotten licensed, and then he and Bob got together and and set it up in the U.S. Yeah. So Greeny had given Jeff the license, and that's a whole other story <laughs> that uh, is classic. But Alan Green and John Law that were running it in Australia, yeah. they knew Jeff was the pro, he was the man, yeah. and it came down to, hey, Jeff, you want the license? Then chew this dolly on a, on a piece of paper on just eat that and that's the deal wow. so there's a little dolly underneath the, the cup of water and jeff chewed it up and, and that was it that was the handshake so he and so amazing so he and uh, bob got it going and bob's dad was in you know export import business and 
you know, Bob had just graduated SC and they loaded up Bob's van and had the, the pattern and had it built by Sandy down in Carlsbad. And they'd go down there with all the money that it could afford and pay for the 200 pair of trunks and literally head up the coast. And by the time they got to Val Surf, they were out of inventory and they made enough money to go repeat the process. So that's literally, and then- And these were Australian designs that they- This was the Australian original design of the board short. And they just were making them domestic at first. And so, yeah, there's a girl that, you know, Greeny basically had sent him a box after Jeff and, and Bob met with them. And they thought they'd get all this instruction and everything. And basically there was a pattern couple snaps and a piece of Velcro. And you're like, what? <laughs> this is what you need. <laughs> this is how you start. Figure Good it out. Good luck. Yeah, and figure it out. And prior like, board shorts were pretty much all tie, ties up until then? No, yeah, at the snaps, time, right? the, only, the only thing going on at the time really was Golden Breed. Uh-huh. You know, OP was out with the cord short. Stubbies was big time. Big yeah. time. You know, with the short cord Sun. shorts. And, uh, you know, then there was uh, Lightning Bolt. Lightning Bolt. Lightning Bolt, that guy, the Lightning Bolt rep was big time. He was cruising around. He was like the rep. I'm like, whoa, that guy, he's got a car and racks and, you know. He's making money. He's making money. Like, that was the And he's surfing a lot. And he's surfing a lot. (laughs) So it was fun to kind of watch the whole thing unfold and then become a part of it. So I started calling on anybody with the heartbeat, sporting goods stores and all that. so, So Bob said, hey, Tom, Jeff and I, are the Quicksilver licensee out here. Mm-hmm. We want you to join the team. Basically, yeah. yeah. But we worked together at night. So yeah. we all had a some to work. Uh, Bob was a valet at the cannery, and then I was working in the bar. And um, yeah, so during the day, you know, you'd, you'd get up and go pedal board shorts that cost a lot more, and you'd be explaining why the patch is so big, and, yeah. you know, the Velcro and the snaps and the whole thing. and. It was really fun. Just trunks. Yeah, that's all we had. (laughs) There wasn't a t-shirt, none of that stuff. Nothing, just trunks. So I remember vividly going down to San Diego, like Steve at Claremont was one of the guys that always comes to mind with Rob at South Coast. And, you know, we had so much fun. We'd always go surf first. And then it would take like two minutes to kind of look at the little bag of board shorts (laughs) because they're only a couple styles. 1977-01 was the first style number, 7701. That was our scallop style. Yeah. Um, and again, that was, you know, that was the excuse to go down and get some waves and see if they were interested in a few. And then same thing, you'd go to Cam at Channel Islands and you'd be there for three or four hours while he really wrote, well, I'll take 133. No, 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 I'll do a 34 <laughs> instead. No, how about 129? Okay. but. It was all good because we had a good time. But anyways, it was Fire, pretty- Fire still do that today, by the way. Of course. <laughs> we just, do you call it marching soldiers? That's what it was. And, uh, you know, we used to, yeah, we used to joke that we had a great time. And again, those were the early days and working two jobs. And I remember vividly, my wife was a school teacher at Montessori. And uh, it was a big deal when I go, hey, I think I can, quit one of the jobs, you know, but it took a few years before Quicksilver was really up and rolling. So take us back. I mean, you're selling one item, a board short, Mm -hmm. right? How many colors did you make? Do you remember? Well, the first, the first couple, you know, times you're like, well, how much was like a typical order? 
well, it wasn't a lot, it was a few hundred bucks. And, <laughs> and the colors were up to what Bob and Jeff could find. Yeah. And they were dealing with a company called Milliken that, and Walter Hoffman, and, and we were just doing solid colors. So the first ones, you'd go, you'd look what they made, and it's like all brown <laughs> with a brown beige waistband. And then two weeks later, they get some blue, and you're like, yeah, navy blue, that sells really good. Yeah. So literally, they were at the mercy of what they could get fabric-wise yeah. and what they could afford. And then they started that relationship with Walter Hoffman and got into print. So the first style, 7701, was the scallop. The next one, 7702, was the square leg, just straight across. Yeah. 7703 was really the game changer. That's the arch leg. And then, you know, brilliantly, you could put prints in the arch or checkers, Yeah. you know, and then the checkers were hand sewn by a lady in the back named Shirley, one of the oldest and longest running employees at Quicksilver. And she would make the customs for the team. And Danny and those kinds of guys would come in and go, hey, I want this and that. And Shirley would sew them up. Yeah. But literally, if you went in the wall at Quicksilver in the early days, you'd see a little wall about 12 feet long. And it would start with 28 and go up to 36. But by the way, there would be 35s. And you'd see a little pile about that tall, a foot tall, in front of each number. And that was your selection. It was assorted. If you ordered, if you were Rob Art and you wanted 12 for each of your stores, you, who knows what the colors would be. Yeah, that's kind but of cool. That's kind of bitching. I wish I'd do that again, yeah. you know? It, life was simple. Assorted. Assorted. <laughs> Yeah. Assorted. Oh, you got all blacks. Well, it's assorted. <laughs> <laughs> so that's really what it was. And it was, timing was everything. It was really fresh. It was the first time that I think, especially with Echo Beach, that bright colors and polka dots and stars, yeah. like the company was was going to die or it was going to go go on because of Echo Beach. Yeah. So like, let me go back. So you started in 77, right? Mm -hmm. First board shorts, right? How many shops do you think you had? Because you just sold in California, right? It, no, there was a heartbeat around. We had another rep that was similar to me that started. He lived in Boston. He didn't surf. His name was Bob Merrigan. And he, uh, we'd see him at the trade shows. We'd all go to Surf Expo in Florida because that was where you go. Mm. And in those early days, we'd show up with some black fabric. We'd go to the 84 Lumber Store, which was their version of Home Depot back in the past. And we'd buy two by fours, build a frame and set it up and just put the little board shorts out. And then Bob Merrigan would fly down from the East Coast. He would wear a bow tie and he wasn't a surfer, but he had the first computer I can ever remember anybody having. Wow. And people would go, oh, you're Bob. I've talked to you on the phone. I bought the 24 units from you last week. I'm in Florida. And literally he didn't travel at all. It was all done by phone. He would call the surf shops and say, hey, we have some new prints or he some new colors. He was telemarketer, huh? He was the telemarketer. <laughs> right. And so we had a lot of fun times at the trade shows in Florida, and that was really the beginning of it. And yeah. then, you know, everywhere in between was kind of open season, whether it was Texas or Seattle. I remember getting a call from somebody up in Seattle, and I'd never heard of him. And I look it up, and I go, wow, it's a little regional department store. Awesome. You know, Bon Marche, that sounds really cool. And they want to get our board shorts. That's like was the biggest market, but you're going Seattle? Yeah. yeah. And they were super cool to deal with. They became a big chain, obviously. But, you know, 
that was really how it grew. There was a sporting goods store in Westwood Village that sold tennis rackets. So besides the Val Surfs and a few surf shops we all knew around, it was that was the challenge to get it into places that we could grow and develop. Yeah. How how soon was like Bob and Jeff able to like put ads in the in the magazines, or was Australia helping with marketing? Or no, they they had to do all their own stuff here. It was all developed here. But you know, Greeny and those guys always had ideas and. You know, Bruce Raymond was involved at the time, and the early ads they would generate. Um, I wish I had them handy. That's another time when you're on TV. Um, but the early ads were classic. But those guys would run just straight shots of some of the riders with yeah. the arch leg with a floral print yeah. in it, and uh, it would say the nicest way to go surfing. Yeah, that was that was one, the slogan. Nicest was, way to go surfing. Yeah. yeah, and that was one of the early ones. So yeah, those early days were classic and pretty special. And I think one of the, the lessons for reps is that literally we took phone books and looked through the sporting goods section in any town you could think of. Yeah. If you're in Phoenix, where do you find an account that's going to sell? So quicks early on? on, you guys were like it's called pioneering. It was portfolio. It was there, called right? pioneering. Yeah. And, and a lot of reps grew up later in their in their careers and never had to do that. They walked into a territory that was already pretty much tuned key or developed, yeah. but especially Southern California. Yeah. Everybody knew kind of everybody. You had all your account base, but when we wanted to go to Bakersfield, who do you sell? Yeah. Lampo, like you got to figure it out, and you know there aren't cool shops everywhere. But that was the challenge is how do you grow and develop the brand before you oversaturate it in a particular market? Yeah. And the goal was you want to be in the best shop yeah. in every town in America. You don't want to be in all the shops. You want to be in the best shop. Yeah. And then at the time, it was just you three pretty much, right? Well, it, it grew behind the scenes. And, um, you know, we had Tom Parrish get going in, in Hawaii, which nobody better than his legacy and heritage and uh, <clears throat> it was really it was fun like nobody had a handbook nobody really knew how yeah. how do you run this whole thing <clears throat> but in the early days it was all about cash flow and trying to keep it going and many times hey I'd get a big order as we grew and we moved from 17th and Pomona to production place and I remember you know we had a couple guys that invested and you know, I had to run in with purchase orders so they could go down to the bank to help finance the next production run. Yeah. You know, it's like you get big orders, like, you know, that's what kept it going. Yeah. So, and again, those early days, it's it's hard to think back at how crazy and yeah. everybody was kind of winging it, but that was the beauty of the times. Yeah. How many, how many like, season, or uh, probably wasn't seasons because you're just making as you go, but... When did you guys start doing like t-shirts and like maybe hats or anything else? I remember when Bob, there was a time where like, hey, we, Bob, you ought to do t-shirts. Believe it or not, we made a corduroy pants before we made t-shirts. Wow. I remember the photo shoot down at Salt Creek with Hackman and those guys where they're all wearing this double snap cord pant on the beach with nothing, you know, no, no top. And the board shirt. So it was all about the bottoms. Hackman's and, like, dude, no shirts, dude. Yeah. I'm just like, yeah. You can't, you can't hide this. So there was, yeah, it was, you know, I think it was more that reluctance to kind of do too much too quick. And yeah. it was like later in, in life for Quicksilver, trying to do kids was a big discussion. Like, hey, are you cannibalizing the brand? Are you, 
you know, if the if the older guy sees it on the young kid, is he is he gonna be over it? Yeah. You know, like all those questions happened at every level on every development, yeah. especially T-shirts. I remember was, Bob was really cautious about all of the above. When you were talking about <clears throat> Expo and the guy on the East Coast, like in my mind, I'm like, man, it's like three dudes that have really no experience of, you know, distribution or sales, really, right? You're like, yeah. you're, you're on the fly learning it all. How fun would that be? Well, I remember <laughs> to put paint a brighter picture, I hadn't been to Florida. And for <laughs> those of you that hadn't been to Florida in the old days, you get off the plane, it's really humid, a lot of bugs, <laughs> And the taxi driver was going, we're going over a little overpass over the freeway. And she goes, by the way, this is the highest spot in Florida. We're like, over the overpass? Yeah, we're on the <laughs> overpass. We show up in a taxi at night, and it's Jeff Hackman, Danny Kwok, and myself. Um, Bob was coming later, and a couple of the other guys were there. We show up at the, at the trade show the night before it's going to open. And the taxi pulls into the kind of the grass parking lot and all the troopers are there, you know, parking and they have their like shaved heads and the whole thing. And all of a sudden this guy looks in the, the window of the cab and he sees Hackman. And he goes, Hackman, I need to talk to you. And Danny and I are sitting there and this guy's got glowing red eyes and he's like, come here, come here. He grabs Jeff out of the car, puts him up against a tree goes, when are you running an ad in my mag? It was a guy named Gunnar Griffin. And Danny and I are just sitting there like this, wide-eyed, going, welcome to Florida. What the heck is going on? Wild Wild West. And it was the Wild West. And if you didn't run an ad in, in, in Gunnar's, you know, magazine. It'd be trouble. And, and they had pinned Yancey like 10 minutes before. He was up against the tree as well, being cornered. So that was our first taste of Florida, and we're like, whoa, what's going on here? Yeah. And then the next day, you see all the bikini models and the whole thing, and the, you know, the color of Florida yeah. that became a legacy, right? <laughs> um, but anyways, it was quite the contrast back then. Yeah. So there were publications that you know, were important to be in. And if you wanted to be on the East Coast, um, that was part of it. That yeah. was the first one. So. Uh... At what point in time, or what year, or what, when did you guys sit down and go, shit, like we, we've got something here? You know what like it right off the bat, or is it like? <clears throat> you know what it was right off the bat when you when you look at a product that you really believe in and you feel special about. You know, you can you just you want to promote it, right? Yeah. You guys have both yeah. been there. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of like you like the story at Ruka or HSS or Surfside or, you know, you, you go, hey, you want to support them. And when you meet Alan Green and John Law and you, hey, one was, you know, one was an accountant, and the other was a wine distributor or sold wine, but they're smart guys. Mm -hmm. And they started the brand by saying, hey, look, we're surfers, you know, we invented this thing called the Ugg boot, but it really doesn't sell well during the summer. Oh my gosh. And their first product was called the Ugg boot. And to this day, that's why you see UGG, Ugg Manufacturing was was the headquarters of Quicksilver in Australia. So they sold it off serious? after- I the, didn't know that. Dude. They sold it off after the first, <clears throat> 
for a season and said, hey, we want to make some board charts. You know, we want to make it so it doesn't, you know, tear off in a big wave. The Velcro snaps cool. You know, that's where it came from. And the same town was Doug or Cloth from Rip Curl. And they made that agreement way back. Hey, look, we'll do the board charts. You do the wetsuits. We'll grow from here, from this tiny little town south of Melbourne. Yeah. So in those early days, that's what's wild is you... You hear the story how pure it is, but the functionality of the board short was there. Yeah. The waistband was designed to stay in place on a man's hips, lower in the front, and with the double snap, it wouldn't tear off. Yeah. And um, so there was function and quality. And the best thing is you take the board short to somebody that's never seen one, and you turn it inside out. And you could see that it was constructed even better inside out. Yeah. And it was pretty easy to know that, hey, it was made by servers, for servers, just like we've always said. Yeah. But Who came up with that? It was really, Greeny was the inspiration with John Law for those early days, along with Jeff and Bob. And you just felt that it was like a family that just was starting to grow. But yeah. you, you, know, you believe in the product, hey, you're gonna drive 150 miles to help pioneer some accounts because it's part of the lifestyle you're living in, right? Yeah. And I remember <clears throat> whether it was Steve O'Connell or Rob Ard going, hey, someday I'll get a real job, but this is really cool. This is fun. <laughs> and I remember my dad going, you're going to make a living at this? Like, what, yeah. is, what do you guys, what I are you surfers? I've for all these years. Yeah, my, my, um, my father-in-law, I remember when I asked for uh, his permission to marry Gail, you know, we were having a cocktail at the Ancient Mariner, and I remember vividly, and he looks up at me and he goes, surfers though, you know, you're a surfer. <laughs> but how are you gonna support my wife? You know, I'm just like, that was the connotation back then, yeah. you know, it was fast times at Ridge, Ridgemont High, and it was a pretty neat feeling when Quicksilver did go public in 1986. And I remember we had our first board meeting, and we all, you know, hey, what's that? What's it mean to go public, you yeah. know? and it was a pretty special way, and and I remember my my dad came down and he's like, "Wow, this is a real deal." Yeah, you know, and it was pretty neat to see how the thing had really come together from, you know, Bob and and Jeff and everybody's efforts early. We were yeah. lucky with the people that Quicksilver acquired and were drawn to the brand. Yeah, and more importantly, the the relationships with the with the shops that started. We were all having fun doing it. Yeah, yeah, and hey. Steve was hoping he could still have a shop in five years too, right? Or Aaron or any of those guys. Yeah, it wasn't just your guys' livelihoods. You found, now you're making a huge <clears throat> impact on all these surf shops' livelihoods. Yeah. So it's not just your little, you know, bubble at the, you know, your your Quicksilver family. Now it's like, wow, we're really it's, moving it's the needle. Yeah. And then it's global. But yeah, I think the other thing is there were so many brands operating at the same time. So gotcha, catch it, you know, Every day there was somebody else trying to jump in. Yeah. And then, you know, a lot of the posers. And I remember, um, yeah, just nonstop, there were more and more people trying to dive into the same thing. So you had to be quick and the quality had to be there. But it was really those relationships that you start early yeah. that people trust you. You work hard to take care of those guys. You get them the best product. You want them to make money. You yeah. want them to succeed with it. And distribution was something none of us really knew. Yeah. You know, but at the time, I like, 
Ajax was the evil empire. And I remember standing with uh, Bob at the first trade show in San Diego called Westmac. And I remember somebody goes, hey, those are the Jax guys coming. And at the time, they launched a brand called Golden Wave. There was a direct knockoff of our brand. It had the same patch. It had Golden Wave and stitches with gold. And it looked identical to our Quicksilver Scallop. So the last thing we're going to do is sell those guys. Like, wait a minute, are you kidding me? Yeah. And um, anyways, it's funny to leapfrog later because over the years, they were one of the last accounts that we sold. And I remember a lot of reps were going, hey, gosh, I make my house payment on how much I sell to those guys. You yeah. know, they're, you know, I'm like, hey, it's like, but we've got great distribution. We've got to feel good about it, you know, and it. It took a while before we all partnered up, but it was a very delicate thing to go oh, yeah. deal with Aaron and say, hey guys, we can't ignore a 10,000 square foot store across the street from you that yeah. does a great job. Yeah. Yeah. We've been loyal to everybody, but business 101, you, there's a time point, you're carrying other brands, hey, we're gonna expand a little bit. And yeah. I remember that was always delicate, getting into those conversations. It's still like that. that. You've always it's, had it's that. still like that. Yeah. yeah. But, so, <clears throat> Thank goodness you guys pioneered that. <laughs> hey, we didn't know what we were doing. Yeah. It just goes with your gut that you want to be loyal. But be honest and upfront and and, up front. and, and, and be like, hey, you, you know, we're not here for any one of us to fail. We're going to make sure it all works out at the end. Yeah. yeah. So I kind of call it, when you look back in the modern times now, you know, the golden age of the surf industry was where we all grew up. Yeah. And it's never going to be like that. And I think that's what, People are so, they're still looking for a company that, that has that. Ruka's probably the closest to carrying that on, yeah. where so many other management ones have changed so dramatically. And, you know, it's so ironic that here's Quicksilver and Billabong under the same roof. Yeah, they have a wall, but, you know, they were our biggest competitor for so long. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I mean, the, you, you have to be tripping out on that whole thing right there. Not as bad. I mean, I was blessed with the career I had and, and the friendships and, I mean, I think at one point I had 19 friends from Quicksilver and Roxy over at Billabong. And I'd go over and see them and catch up with them and see the friends at Quick. And, you know, and I remember the phone was ringing off the hook when they all go, we're moving back to the same old building that we got laid off away. You know, and, and it was, um, yeah, it's pretty wild how the whole thing has kind of developed. But I think it really came down to Business 101 started becoming, hey, it's like surfing has to get into business to, to succeed in the future. Yeah. yeah. And as people were growing, it's all about, it's all easier when things are growing crazy. Yeah. And you're trying to maintain and keep up with it. And at the same time, you know, but then the bills are bigger and you have to buy things further out yeah. and forecasting and planning and hiring. And I was just going to, you know, that's the hard part. I was just going to say, like, in the beginning there, when it was you three, what, like, what were the roles in the beginning? You were sales? Mm -hmm. In the early days, yeah. I was the sales guy, and Bob and Jeff had to figure out the rest. Danny was really the, the first real team writer in, in, in our books. Yeah. And um, luckily, we and that, had a lot of other guys that, that story got, of got him, flowed. That story of him and Preston... Oh, it's very stealing, true. Stealing, stealing, yep. very true. Stealing Quicksilver out of the warehouse and 
than getting caught selling it out of the back of their bank. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and instead of instead of getting them thrown in jail. Bob made him guys... work it out. Yeah. Bob Bob and Jeff made him work it out. And no, it's classic. Yeah. Turning that into labor, sweat yeah. sweat equity, you know, sweat labor. <clears throat> do you want to go to jail or do you want to yeah. work for us? And that, Easy that, decision. Yeah, but there's but that's part of it. And and the back door of that building, you can still drive by that building area right there at 17th and Mona. And the back door was always open and those guys knew it. And that little pile I described earlier was just sitting there. Yeah. Go up and grab. And I, if I'm not mistaken, they grabbed the wrong sizes. All 36 They couldn't run far enough in to grab, you know, I think that's why it didn't work as well. And they had to go sell a bunch. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's classic to see everybody, you know, how it all started. So... I remember the other story that's pretty timeless is we were at the Magic Show and it was in the, the Echo Beach era when it just started. And all we knew, we had, we'd, we'd sold t-shirts, we had shorts and everything. And we were at the Magic Show next to members only. They had a row of like 80 booths. They and were we, and huge. We had, yeah, they were huge. And we had one little brand here. And again, we had this tiny booth and Hackman was there and we were waiting for a box from Alan Green in Australia. And that was gonna be our new design. Like that was it. We'd, we'd heard it's coming, it's being shipped to you. You can show it to Magic. And we're just waiting at the booth. Luckily this little box showed up and Jeff grabs it, Danny was there and he opened it up and his face just, he's like, oh no, we're screwed. <laughs> and I'm like, what are you talking about? We look and it was, polka dots and stars and all the Echo Beach stuff. The best shit ever. <laughs> and we had no idea. We're just going, how are we going to sell this? And oh at the time, God. everybody is wearing solids. It just ended up being the most fortunate thing, but it was really inspired. It's a new way to hit. Yeah, man, but you know where it came from? Before it hit you guys, right? You know where it came from? Greeny was a big horse racing guy. And if you notice, jockeys wear all this fun oh, stuff. Yeah. yeah. And... Very Needless colorful. to say, I've got a picture on the wall here of my dad. They were racing cars in the 50s, and they wore the same kind of jumpsuit with wild stuff on it. Huh. And that was like an influence, but the horse jockey thing was the deal. So the stars and polka dots and checkers. That was his inspiration? But Greeny had this horse thing, and that was part of it. But they had the artist down there that Simon Button Shop was the one that kind of curated it and put it together. He's wow. brilliant. And, you know, saw this direction and then transcribed it into the prints. So the prints were engineered with those images. Yeah. And then we so ended Echo up... Echo Beach came from Australia? The idea, the artwork, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and not from Newport but Echo Beach. at the time, that became the tie-in because, hey... 54th Street needed a handle. There it is. Yeah. Echo Beach was the handle. Danny was the figurehead. Yeah. Who, who was it called? Echo Beach. The ra the range was called Echo Beach. Okay. The, from, from Australia. The the range that we presented was called Echo Beach, okay. and and what it was is basically a group of prints. And let's jump to Bob Merrigan on the East Coast. Here he is on the phone. He's got Echo Beach. He's very far removed from surfing. Much much further from these prints. He's yeah. freaking out. He would call, you know, sunrise to sunset and say, hey, how many of the Echo Beach? I just got this new crazy print in. 
Okay, maybe I'll try some. Whatever you guys have sent me before has worked, even though it's assorted. Yeah. And then, you know, he'd call, you know, Ron John. You know, they'd say the same thing. Hey, send us, we'll take 48. Yeah. And, you know, around the country, we had just enough to kind of get things out there. And the thing hit Blue. like gangbusters. Oh, and all of a sudden, well, everybody's... about that was so magical because, I mean, I thought Echo Beach was Newport Beach. Right. Yeah, that's. And it was 54th Street. You, yeah. You you transcribed that name and made it 54th Street Studio 54. Exactly. Echo Beach. Right? Exactly. So that was kind of the fun thing that you're just like, oh my gosh, it worked. Yeah. And I remember being in that trade show booth, just going, what are we gonna do? You know. And then and you got to go call magic. around. And we're at Magic, the you know, which they didn't get it. You're looking at the stuff around you. You had designer jeans and yeah. members-only jackets. Now, and was there surf shops going to? Yeah, yeah, believe it or not, there was a lot of private label back then, and the bigger stores were, and we were getting more and more pressure from the bigger stores. But, you know, you can't find surf shops in Spokane, Washington. Who do yeah. you sell? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, so that was the balance of, hey, we'll sell Miller's Outpost, but only the ones inland. Yeah. You know, and no, you can't have it out here, out here. I mean, even even Pac Sun. I remember they were pretty bummed because we still had stores we weren't comfortable dealing with. We had plenty of distribution in those areas. Yeah. And we had a handshake arrangement like, hey, you guys, we'll support you because you're helping us grow. But, you know, we need to balance this. We want to keep the brand strong. So it's a delicate balance. Yeah. But then Echo Beach was such a hit that was primarily a surf shop only kind of package and uh -huh. that really reacted to it. It, it. it didn't translate into bigger stores anyways. Yeah. And that's the whole idea is that we didn't realize it at the time. That was the more progressive part. Yeah. Keep it edgy. It's keep the it, artist, keep it tight. artist collection, if you want to call it. Yeah. Ruka would do. Yeah. So, Core any, exclusive. so what, what happened afterwards? Like, how do you up that? So there are more and more Echo Beach prints that, that Simon and the crew down there would put up with put up and uh, then it was followed by what's called heat wave and heat wave was the colors kind of were still bright and blended you may remember an ad with Willie Morris and you know there's some classic ones um, so then uh, yeah those were the things that kind of kept us going and then there were volley shorts that were released like what we were wearing up there yeah <clears throat> we did a solid like volley yeah and uh, we did a solid with a big crazy patch, or we did floral prints. And Bob actually was sponsoring Karch Karai at the time. And Bob's always been a volleyball player. So there was this little college thing that was developing yeah. volleys, and we recognized a market there. Not everybody wanted a fixed board short. Right. So um, we were just really lucky with all the crazy stuff that came across. Yeah. Timing, were, too. I mean, timing, unbelievable timing. timing. Yeah. We were talking about that at you know, at that point of, uh, at that point in time, it seemed like Newport Studio 54 was like the epicenter of the new wave, new school kind of surfing and, and fashion yeah. and design and all that. Yep. And I remember, uh, you know, Quack, Boston, uh, what's his name? Jeff. Brasto. Jeff Brasto, Preston Murray. Preston Murray. Yeah. Parker. Jeff, Jeff Parker. Jeff Parker. Parker. Yeah. yeah. And and Mike and Moyer the taking the pictures. Remember the hot one hundred hundred hardest yards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And it was Danny uh, jumping off the jetty. Yep, and the pink porch. Yeah, yeah. Polka dot board. And I, and as a kid, I was like, "Fuck, 
this is insane. Yeah. yeah. These guys are rad. I want a polka dot board short and a polka dot surfboard. Well, remember, I think <laughs> the magazines were going crazy because a lot of a lot of surfers around the planet were reading the magazine going, how the heck is Newport the hottest hundred yards? Yeah. Wait a minute. Yeah. What, what, their surf isn't that good? Come on, what's the deal? Like, why are these guys getting all the press? Remember, yeah. that was a big deal at the time. Yeah. yeah. And but, you, you felt it in Huntington. Oh, right? for sure. But it seemed like <clears throat> Quicksilver not just put, like, Orange County on the map for them. They put it on for, like, the industry. Like, yeah. everybody started popping up. If they're going to start a brand, they wanted to be at Ground Zero. <laughs> yeah, you guys yeah. kind of were in... in <clears throat> You were the reason why everybody moved to Newport Costa Mesa, or it became Silicon Velcro Velcro Valley or Velcro whatever. Valley. Yeah. No, I remember we would explain it to people around the country. That I remember Bob describing this to investors down the road. That hey, if you had a map of the world, but more importantly the U.S., and you put pins where just the surf brand manufacturers are. It was this weird little epicenter. Yeah. And the only other one similar but much smaller was in Melbourne, Australia, or Torquay. Yeah. You know, where you had, you know, Rip Curl and then Billabong and everybody spun out of there. But it was crazy. And where Hurley was shaping and everybody, where he launched his brand, you know, it just seemed to be that that's where the energy was. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, in other parts, I mean, Florida is probably the healthiest you know, surf shop market on the planet, right? Yeah. But for whatever reason, there wasn't a lot of manufacturing there. No, yeah. Right? right. And the East and Coast. Still, and still, yeah. And the East Coast. There might be shapers, yeah. but not like clothing. So, so the manufacturing capability and the gateway to the Pacific and people having stuff sewn overseas or whatever, you know, it tapped into the Garmento industry, so to speak, that was based in L.A. Yeah. yeah. I actually at one time had to have an office at the Mart in LA. Did you really? And it's like, hey, that's just how you had to be a player. And Stubbies, all those other Levi's, we were kind of lumped in with the Levi buyer would probably buy us. And I had a a young lady named Linda Hanley, Linda Robinson, who was a professional volleyball player. And I was not able to deal with the Mart, driving up there every day and having this office in the Garmento world. She could talk her way out of a paper bag, and she manned it for me, and she dealt with all the buyers and all the idiosyncrasies there. It's called and delegation. What's that? It's called delegation. Delegation. And it worked, yeah, it worked out really well, and she was awesome, but that was part of playing the game. Yeah. And, you know, the Miller's Outpost buyer or Wild Wild West stores at the yeah. time, they were pretty cool. Yeah. Um, Tilly. Mr. We met, Rags, was it? Was yeah, Mr. Mr. Rags was up in uh, Seattle before... Yeah. Tom Campion got yeah. really rolling. Uh, Tilly was around. I met her and Hezzy way back when yeah. they had one store in Main Street. Yeah. And, you know, they were supportive of the brand. But all those people were roaming the Mart once a week doing stuff. And yeah. it's like another way to kind of connect the dots. Yeah. And that's when the other transition was, hey, we're dealing with bigger stores. It's really easy to go in and call on Rob or Market Val and hey, but you need to understand what sell-through is, what margin is. Are you making money? Yeah. You know, I remember that was the next educational thing process where there's so much competition. Hey, Aaron, do you really know what you're selling in yeah. your store? Do you have selling reports back then? Nobody really did. It was yeah. done manually. All triplicates. No, no, no. Hey, the shelf's empty. Yeah. Let's buy some more. Yeah. Right? Yeah, cash flow and, and just managing like inventory that was 
there weren't soft categories. Yeah. There, you had you had random brands and the yes. reps that would go in, just like everybody goes to Jack's on Monday mornings, right, and walks Monday over to Aaron's. <laughs> and and you know what? But the people that don't go in that would just sell it in, hey, they're not well thought of, right? Yeah. But you got to go in there and follow it through. But it took a while. I remember all of us. We started educating the reps on retail math. Yeah. And none of us really realized how important it was. But as a rep, if you didn't know what was selling, where the store was making the money off your product, then you're not doing your job. You're not doing your job. And we all had to learn. It was like, okay, math 101. Okay, so margin, how do you compute the margin? Yeah. We sell it to them for 15 bucks and they mark it up to 30. And okay, but then they have to mark it down. And then what's your ending margin? How much yeah. do you have left? And you know, and, and I remember even the team writers. It gave me a headache just now. Yeah, it, it, it's, so we actually, I started hiring people that were good at retail. Yeah. And one of the guys I got was a buyer at the Broadway to leave buying there and come to work for us. And a guy named John Mills, and he was amazing. Mm. He was never a salesman. We said, we can teach you. You know, he's somebody that you could sit down with and you trust him. He's honest, he's up front, but he could just, do a spreadsheet in two minutes and say, wow, you're not selling any pants. Yeah. What's the deal? You know, but those were the things that really made a difference when all the brands start expanding their categories. Yeah. Hey, where are you making your money? Yeah. And you yeah. guys tell me, but remember the board chart wall at Surfside? Like, yeah. like you had to be on that thing yep. to the point where at the end of the season, all that stuff's on life support. They have to cycle it out and they're barely making any money on that. Yeah. But remember the heyday, everybody had to be on the board. How many pegs can you get? How many pegs can you get? Yeah. And then you start looking at the sell through at the end of the season and it's like, okay, two for one. Okay. You guys got to take back the rest. Yeah. You know, it's where people recognize opportunities for business and they maximize it. Yeah. You know, so that was the trick. And, and that like so many questions and so many ideas are popping through my head right now when you're, when you're talking about that, because like, you guys learned all that and then you started like you know implementing like said, learning it implementing it and then uh like what do you call it polishing your act right yeah the, you're like you're like <clears throat> figuring it out okay we can't just sell in it's got to sell through well one of the first things i did at a very early age i had no idea how important it was the first clinic i had to do I'd only been doing Quicksilver for a short amount of time, and there was a store in Fashion Island called At Ease. Yeah. And it was the coolest men's store up there. And I remember they heard about Quicksilver. There was a shop right over here in the mall uh, called Storekeeper. And they were kind of men's stores, like Stuart Avis down in Laguna, in Laguna Canyon. And the men's stores, you know, they deal with Talbot ties and all this other stuff. And I remember Charlie Cotton, who later in life ended up working for us and doing being our retail development guy. I remember Charlie Cotton. Yeah, did the visuals. He was working there and he said, Hey Tom, you know, we got your board shirts in. Will you come in on a Saturday morning at eight thirty and talk to the staff? Okay. And I'm like, What? What what for? He goes, Well, you know, we have our vendors come in and I hadn't heard that term vendors. Uh, he goes, We'd like to have our vendors come in and, and give the staff a little more detail about the product. And as wow, you said, gosh. it's about it's about the story. Yeah. And, you know, at the time we didn't, 
I was like, hey, I'll do it. What do, what do I need? And I remember following the guy from Talbot Ties deliberately and here are the employees coming in before the store opened, spending an hour learning about the product they're going to sell. I was like, wait a minute, surf shops, they barely open up. You know, yeah. they're getting out of the water and they open the doors like, okay, hey, sorry, I'm late. And you're like, wait a minute, there's something going on here. Yeah. And sure enough, the kids were, were more interested in where the product came from. What were the origins of it? How did it get started? Hey, they're not going to understand the warp and weave or that Millican makes the poly blend or the Velcro and snaps, but they yeah. did remember the construction, but they really liked the story. Yeah. And that was the light bulb too that we transcribed across other things where you go, hey, look at this is an opportunity. So we started doing clinics and it made us go, time out. Let's get all the reps together and at the sales meetings, let's get them into the story. Let's tell the same story. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's 35 reps across the country now. Hey, they're all making up the same story and changing it a little and it's all cool. But just think if we really get this styled. Yeah. And that was another kind of game changer and became so important. So understanding the retail math and then getting involved in translating the story in a vertical manner as well as a visual manner. Yeah. Here I can, oh, yeah, we might close that. It's, it's, uh, it's definitely important <clears throat> and it's even way more important today, you know? Yeah. Because there's so many choices out there, right? Yeah. And like for a brand like Outer Known, yeah. our, our price point's a lot higher than most brands. So if we're sitting next to an O'Neill flannel or a, a Vance flannel and ours is 70 bucks more, you know why why is that yeah that's right, right. so if that that kid on the floor doesn't care doesn't know then we're just gonna sit there right so and yeah they're they're ultimately the the deciding factor a lot because when consumers come in they're the ones that are so-called the professionals the working in stores they're the yeah. front men so they're the ones that are selling your product and the more you could hype them up and the more inspire them and yeah product knowledge his, Slow, you know, yeah. getting you know, getting some kids on. Our job is to sell it in, right? Yeah. We, we sell it to the buyer, and we tell we personally and, tell and, that story. And you cross your fingers. Yeah. A lot yeah. of guys just cross their fingers after that and hope it works. Right, and we we tell that to the buyer, but then that's pretty much where the the buck stops there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It gets lost in translation because finally the product hits the floor. Of that kid, I didn't tell that story to that kid. I know. So how's that kid gonna get behind it? Well, that's the other thing. And then that led into other things where the first thing we did was called a salty dog tour. And I organized a, a random group of accounts from all over the country and we ended up in Puerto Rico. And the next year we ended up in Hawaii. And we had people from Kelly on the beach or whatever, but part of it was to share our culture. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, in the, at the end of, of my working years there, grabbing uh, Hubert from Montreal, who's like a great account, to take somebody like that to the Eddy. Yeah. Or, you know, there's people that were selling Eddy products on the East Coast that we would take them to the Eddy and they'd get it. Like, yeah. oh, what's the Eddy? And then all of a sudden they're like, 
they're there seeing it, feeling it. You know, that was part of it is that it got to that point where hey, we'd handpick a few people each year to try and do something special besides just a dinner at the trade show and all yeah. that. But the early days of the trade shows really started with, wait a minute, Wally, you're out here? You've never met John Stable from Ron John? What? You know, like, yeah. I wanted people to meet and interact that have never met that should know each other. Yeah. That was the thing that blew my mind is all these people on the East Coast trying to share ideas, but they've never met. Yeah. And I was just shocked. And the same thing, the North versus the South on the East Coast, there were so many shops up there. Brave New World, Bill Lammers, you know, and and he didn't really know so-and-so. And, and it was really fun kind of helping those guys kind yeah. of get together or when they'd come out to the Haiti of San Diego and you want to make sure they all meet because we're all in this together. Yeah. yeah. And it was so fun to see how excited they were and for them to go to, you know, Ground Zero at Huntington Beach yeah. and to walk in, whether they're at San Diego or one of the trade shows. But the same thing is we started taking people on surf trips because that's how we grew up. Yeah. And that way, hey, we'd flown product, yeah. you know, get the thing going, but translating your company's story is huge. onto the floor, onto yeah. the consumer is still the hardest thing to do. It goes a long yeah. way. Because, I mean, we're selling a lifestyle, like you said, being at the beach, at these events, being at, you know, the headquarters, going on a trip, getting, you know, different retailers together, even though they're in probably different climate zones or whatever, they're, they're still in it. Yeah. You know, not only are you showing them a good time, mm -hmm. but you're showing them the lifestyle, the culture, and really, if, if you're successful, right, if your brand is important, those people are going to rally around you more because, <clears throat> hey, they're sharing success stories, right? Yeah. Quicksilver's doing this. Quicksilver, oh, shit, I didn't know that. Yeah. Like, yes. It's, wow. it's, in, it's, it's engaging. Yeah. The other, the other wild one, one time, I remember... Training the athletes was so important to Quicksilver. And with Bruce Raymond heading that up and internationally and everybody involved, you know, Rob Roland Smith, a Sand Hill Warrior, you guys know. Yep. And if you did one of his camps, but one of the things they did, they included the sales group because you had all these team riders. And hey, when you're taking Kelly on an East Coast tour when he's a young guy, like, you know, it was so fun to, to watch him grow and develop. But one of the things we tried to do is, hey, we're, we're torturing them to go shop to, so, shop to say hi, but we're also saying, you know how important this is yeah. for each one of these kids to see you or meet you, no yeah. matter who the rider is. Yeah. And a lot of the guys, like Kelly, got it. And I remember Kelly in particular, he was the hardest to get going in the morning. Um, not as bad as skaters, but <laughs> Kelly, once you got him up though, and, and roll in and we said, here's the schedule. He would not leave to the last kid. Oh yeah. Got his autograph or signed. And at, at a young age, he was so appreciative and he'd spent all that time with Keckley going up, you know, the East Coast to Hatteras when he was younger. But that was kind of the benchmark. Tom Carroll was another one that was amazing with people. There were other team riders we'd take around and you're like, uh, hey, you gotta get out of the car now. Yeah. Uh, hey, can you know, don't just go in the back and read the mags, yeah. you know? And it was so amazing when you watch the magic happen for the people that get it. Yeah. 
that translate it like yeah. like you know personally and those were the guys that going around hey it was a tour we did kelly's you know one tour we did like i don't know how many stops in seven days when he 11 time world champ yeah <laughs> you know and it was planes trains and automobiles but i remember kelly was just you know like hey this is too much i you know like but he he pulled it and the last stop was puerto rico and we really were just like kelly come on he goes no no i got it i got it back and i'm like they are so into surf and you know the same thing when i think they feel it too but he in particular i mean it was like a privilege to go with those guys and then when they saw the influence of how well it can work yeah. and they get it where you have some of the younger kids that you know sandy hill warrior was a great example he'd train them and take them up and down the beach and surf and but part of it was we try to explain to them how the surfboard industry or the, the board short industry works. They didn't understand how a board short's built, how the price works, why, why do they sell it at the store at $55? How does it get to that? We had to explain what it takes to make it, how many pieces. Yeah. That was actually amazing because they had no clue. Nobody's ever told them. Right. You yeah. know, they're just a team rider. Just for you. Hey, they just yeah. get free stuff. Yeah. Now, how, do, how does that work? Yeah. And that was kind of really fun to, to find the kids that were really, you know, five eager. out of town were really eager mm -hmm. to understand yeah. that, like Reef, you know, like people that really tuned in. Tony like, G's had so much good things to say about Reef. Yeah, and same thing, like MR today, just today, like I, I watch how dedicated he is to his fan base and to Quicksilver the brand. Wow. And it's just amazing what he does. Like the other last time he was here, I'm like, do you have a team of like 10 people on your social media? <laughs> he goes, no, it's just me at night watching the telly. I'm like, come on. And, and no, he explained it like, I mean, I would think with everything he does, yeah. and he's very calm about it and deliberate. And, um, but it's just really cool when somebody has a true background. Yeah and can really understand how it all works. It just makes your jobs yeah. even better. And yeah. to go to Outer Known, you know, we were fortunate enough to get up to the, to the ranch. And what was so amazing is it was like, oh, it's expensive. The, the people were so welcoming. And the beyond, yeah, oh my gosh. beyond what you expect. Yeah. And First class treatment. Three meals. And not like fake at no, all. No, not at all. Genuine. Just you, yeah, you expect like, what? Yeah, the the store, the build out, the whole thing is hey, it's what you expect. But we were so impressed by that, and it was so cool to see that vision translated down yeah. to even that level. And there's nothing like Romana yelling at you, "Hold me, I love you, I love you," when he's on his <laughs> ski running by. But you know, like those are the things that when you can translate why you're doing what you're doing, why you're 25% yeah. more than the competition. Yeah. You know, that's, yeah. how do you do that? Yeah. Well, that's why it's so important to have like front men, like, like ourselves as front of, you know, the like brand. Sales reps yeah. Like yeah. That's you right. Know? Because <laughs> right here. You, yeah. You're, you're telling that story, but you know, you're also passionate about what you're selling. And if you're not, then you probably shouldn't be working for that company. Yeah. Right. But you know, just to see, like the stoked in the store and then tell, you know, like you said, point out something about the product or tell them something that the kids never heard of, whether it's like, Hey, this is a recycled 
material or hey did you buy it you know no we use you know like you know you know uh like water-based inks or something, you know, versus oil and why that's important. And, you know, yeah. so, you know, anytime you could like just give them a little bit of knowledge is, it goes a long way for sure. Kids psyched. Well, you're, you're talking about um, phone books, you know. <laughs> Ta- what about the Thomas Guide? <laughs> Anything, yeah. How do like, you... Right how do, back in the day, man, like you, you guys, yeah, seriously. Pioneering was really, I remember having conversations with some of our own reps, like, the guy in Michigan or the guy like, like get a phone book. They're like, yeah. what? Like, how do you go look it up? You can't go online back then. Yeah. Like yeah. that didn't exist. So those, those were the fun things um, that, yeah, you literally had to look and you go, well, God, there's two sporting goods stores. Let's go figure out which one's best. Yeah. yeah. And those are called cold calls. Yeah. <laughs> cold calls. And, and, you know, all the commercial real estate guys have to do it for five years, right? Before they graduate, so yeah. to speak. So no, it was those were interesting times. So again, I think that it was so special between the customers, the reps, the story, the surfing, the evolution, the timing on just that aura of the surf industry. The trade shows were in full bloom. Yeah. You know, everybody was just having fun. I remember meeting a guy that was selling cell phones and killing it. You know, it was just it's like I want to quit my job. I want to work for a surf brand. Yeah. Like I just want to work for a surf brand. Yeah. I'm making great money, but it's not what it's all about. And yeah. how many people do you run into today that you used to work with in some shape or form in the industry? And they're like, I'm still looking for that that special avocation. Yeah. It's not a vocation, it's an avocation where you love what you do. Yeah. And you appreciate the people around you. Yeah. And you develop those friendships that are lifelong. For right? sure. So, how long were you at Quicksilver from '77 to? Well, 35 years. Wow. Roughly, yeah. And what were your like titles, <clears throat> rep to sales manager to? Yeah. You, you... Um, <clears throat> basically, starting with a rep, and and I remember getting um, Dan McInerney because San Diego was a far drive to cover everything. And Dan Mack came on board, and then you know Willie and and. I had 10 people underneath me in my own little Holby Co. group. Yeah. And he created a, a Holby Co. Agency, yeah, I had a right? little corporation within yeah. Quicksilver. And because again, we were all technically independent reps. And then, you know, the company said, hey, why don't you come on side and be a sales manager? And I'm like, well, this is, you know, hey, I don't know if, you know, I want to do that or whatever and all that. And um, one thing led to another. And hey, I became a sales manager. And then, so next thing you know, it, it back grew. Back up one second. So when you started Holby Co., mm-hmm. you were independent? Yeah. And I had 10 employees, including females mm-hmm. and people having babies and, you know, you know, having, you know, Tucker Hall to Willie Morris wow. under the umbrella. So um, what year was that? Like It was in the 80s, okay. 80s and 90s. So, so it was <clears> like... 77 you're working independent and then yeah then that then i we started growing the staff in the 80s and then in the 90s basically you know went inside in the night early 90s and uh you know janet janet gothard was my trusted right hand gothard janet gothard john's wife okay yeah and you know it was really a fun crew so i had a separate little office across the street in monrovia and uh but yeah, that was wild. We had we had a really good crew. Tom Reese, yeah, 
Um, so never a dull moment. Yeah. We had a lot of fun stuff going on. And then when I came in, inside, then I, everybody else went on their own and it worked out great. And then, yeah, I just started traveling more. I hadn't anticipated that, but I knew going across the country is not a big deal. You know, I had relationships in, in Florida and Surf Expo and a lot of the shops and hey, it was fun. And then yeah. what happened after that was all of a sudden I got a phone call in 98. I was on vacation in Honolulu and um, uh, Bob, or our president at the time, called and said, hey, um, what do you think about Canada? We just got the rights to Canada. Do you want to get it going? And I'm like, never been there, but yeah, hey, I'll do that. So I remember, yeah, it was 96. So I flew to Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver and interviewed people through contacts up there and built a network and got some great guys up there, um, some of which were, I'm still very close, Rodney Harris, yeah. Um, you know, John so, Rainey, some John other Rainey. guys. I was just going to say. Yeah, John so Rainey. there are a lot of a lot of great guys up there and got that going. And the next thing I know, I was, <clears throat> we ended up picking up more countries in South America. So I was, I got to pra practice my uh, restaurant Spanish. <laughs> and um, that was really fun. And luckily I, had, I found a guy named Quinn Campbell, who was pretty instrumental in helping you know, be on the ground down there in a lot of places. Yeah. And then luckily in Lima, Peru, we hooked up with Chaffee and, and uh, Cacatua and some amazing people and, you know, Ecuador and, you know, Venezuela. And Did you get to travel yourself down yeah, there Yeah, so we were, we were down there and surfing in yes. some pretty Just fun places. Sure everybody's doing their, their job right, right? Yeah. yeah. And luckily, that was the key to board the meeting. ticket. You know? Board meeting, you guys. And yeah, the neatest thing, like you go to Peru and you knew the history, but you kind of didn't until you go there. And there's a club there called Club Waikiki. And if you haven't heard of it, you need to. It's on the beach in Lima, Peru. And Lima's one of the, well, Peru's one of the poorest places in the world. And I think 5% or something like that have wealth at all. And the wealthy were the surfers in the town. And in the 70s and 80s, Felipe Pomar and Jeff Hackman and the Downings started traveling between North Shore and Lima mm. because those, those bamboo canoe things they yeah. made, they used to go out at this one point where Ernest Hemingway hung out and they'd be offshore in the morning, they'd go out and fish and then they'd go in on these stand-up paddle boards that they made for uh, 200 was... years. Wow. You know? So if you ever look at those things, that's how they'd go out to sea, and then the wind would change and blow them back. And the surfing Crazy. culture there was pretty amazing. But what we realized in South America, Quicksilver was so special to them because they would wear it to church. They would wear it on their dates at night. It, was a, it, was it a, wasn't about just surfing. It was That was prestige. Yeah. That was like the coolest brand they could have. So when we got down there, Billabong had penetrated really well, but... We were really fortunate with the people that I, we partnered up with down there. And, you know, we got involved in contests and different things and, you know, watching the culture. But if you want to go call on an account, you need to plan a week. They won't let you leave. Yeah. They want you to meet their family and hang yeah. out. They're, and da -da 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 -da. Very hospitable people. And, and it was so It's a much, sign of respect and bring yeah. you in and, and show you a good time. I mean, that's... It, and it was really fun and just some amazing people down there. But then on the other hand, you find out the head of police in Peru was one of the master counterfeiters. 
knocking off a lot of the brands. What? So you couldn't do anything about it? So then I'm, I'm working with att attorneys or, you know, government agencies or the embassies trying to board off counterfeiters that are like right in front of us. Wow, so you could, you could go in Costa Rica, it was so bad. We had great accounts down there that you know, yeah. sell all the brands and you could go downtown and walk in all these stores look the same that have like counterfeit Nike, counterfeit Quick, yeah. counterfeit Bruca. They do it perfectly. Yeah. And you can't stop them because not everybody has their own trademark in Costa Rica. Rusty doesn't have their trademark. They can't control it. So we had a, that was a whole other thing around the world that <clears throat> there were times that I had to be part-time policeman, but it was so important to the integrity of the brand. Yeah. But when you have people personally knocking off your brands, that's the dark side of what happens in certain places. Yeah, for sure. So and that'll never go away. Yeah, yeah. and you don't really yeah. see it here, but you know, it still happens today, though. I mean, does. there's a lot of t-shirts, a lot of counterfeit going on. Yeah, yeah. So that's, I mean, there are all these different angles, but yeah, being blessed to be able to travel, I never thought I'd be traveling like that. Going to Canada, you know, calling Bruce, going, got to get the crossing up here, got to go to, you know. Nova Scotia is pretty darn special. Yeah. There's a really hardcore group of guys there. Yeah. But, you know, we'd go to Did town. You surf Nova Scotia? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so, I was fortunate to take, you know, Reef and Tom Carroll and MR up there at different times. And, you know, we just show a couple movies and buy beers for the locals and hang out. That's and it. And they Easy. were kind of like Hatfields and McCoys because of the territories up there. But there's such a pure surfing culture up there. And, when you see the conditions, you'd move there if you saw it how it is in the summer. Yeah. But you realize the other nine months of the year, yeah. you don't want to know about it. <laughs> but you know, those are that's where yeah. we've all been blessed to be able to go do that. Well, if, just so you guys, you know, kind of, you know, making that bridge between these like surfing celebrities that you'd see just in surfing magazines and in movies, and actually getting them there to these really remote kind of, you know, destinations. Those people probably freaking. Yeah. didn't take much. You didn't yeah. have to do anything. Like you said, pizza, beer, whatever, like just come and hang out. Yeah, we were really, it's like your passport is the Quicksilver family. Yeah. And I think that, you know, globally, that was the cool thing is being able to go and, you know, I mean, hey, Kelly's mom, I'd see at every trade show in Florida. You know, I have to get her a badge, make sure she gets in. Yeah. And, you know, like it was so cool. And, you know, I remember going to his house in the early days and, you know, you see all the trophies sitting outside by the pool. Like he had so many when he was little, just there were so many that didn't fit in the house. He yeah. just started stacking them, you know, and, and um, you know, Keckley talking story. And, and, but that's, that's what's so special about the industry is Tony G and I can have dinner. And like, as he's gotten older, he's gotten more fired up. Yeah. Like how cool is that? Yeah. You know, yeah. with this, his, his ice cream thing. And, you know, I, it's, it's neat to see all these guys persevering through everything that's been thrown at them the last five, ten years. That's what's incredible. Yeah. Well, you've seen recessions, you've seen <clears throat> brands come and go, you've seen, you know, the public stock exchange come into the fact mm -hmm. of, you know, what, you what guys, it's done to surf brands. You guys public in 86? Yeah. Damn. We're, it was $18 million in volume at the time. <clears throat> and, and, like, why and how and like, yeah, who, why did you guys do it? Part of it was the guys, basically Bob and 
and the crows and Randy Hunt, <clears throat> they literally had to run, you know, put their houses on the line every winter. They had to sign a personal guarantee to get the product built. Right. You know, and that was one way to get capital or funding to help the growth. And luckily the growth was good and the margins for the company were good, but Randy had a background with his father at Security Pacific Bank and I pretty much it was his idea to kind of go, hey, maybe we can do this. And <clears throat> none of us, I'm like, going public? Like, huh? Yeah. You know, and, and we all knew what the stock market was, but you, they found a small company that specialized in something like that. And it's hard for a company to qualify to do that. Yeah. But then at the time, it was like, hey, it's a sellout. People were like, oh, they're selling out. They're going public. Yeah. Nobody really knew what it meant. The irony was a year later, everybody's like, wait a minute, you get stock options and health plans? Yeah. Wait, we, we need to do this. Because yeah. I don't think very many people know that it was way back then that you did that. It, we were the first company that was, was doing it, and it was controversial. But at the same time, it relieved the founders of being able to get the monkey off their back. Yeah. You know, losing sleep at night. Hey, it's are we going to get the orders? Are we going to... How do we pay this, you know, inventory? And I mean, there's a lot of things when you're at that level. Yeah. Any, anybody trying to run a business knows. And I think no matter what size, there's a point where you, you have to get a lot of credit. You have to do well, something to, well, we to balance say, that. Well, we think Quicksilver being pioneers of the industry, like you guys have done so many different things that support that. You know what I mean? Not, not just because you started way back then, but like you guys developed and created and nurtured an industry, you know? Hey, but luckily Bob had a mentor, a guy named Bob Kirby, who at the time was was head of Capital Guardian Trust, one of the sharpest guys on Wall Street, predicted a lot of the things that happened in the 80s. Wow. He was a family friend and amazing guy. And, um, you know, he drove a beat-up little Datsun <laughs> but managed some of the biggest money. and And... What was funny is he was really the backbone and really helped guide Bob and, and the, the leaders on the board yeah. at the time. And that was really significant and helped grow and navigate through that. And, and luckily, the, the money got spent in the right places and growth and, and trying to anticipate what's going on. But, you know, it was still at that time, we were still licensed to Australia. So we had to buy out the rights for even our own territory, plus getting more. So as time progressed, then, you know, Greeny would peel off the rest of them, and that helped get us the money to buy more of the global piece of it. Yeah. So yeah, it was. That's a whole other financial world. But the downside of that is, everybody tells you, hey, it's quarter to quarter. You know, you you live that life, and even in the sales rep position. Yeah. Okay, you guys. Hey, we got to ship everything out by the thirty first. We got to hit this number. I, well, I know that wealth. Have you heard that? Well, you know. Hey, can we ship that early? Do you think they'll mind if they get yeah. it two weeks early? Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Good. Hey, we'll give you dating as of. So part of it is that you become a slave to, you the know, number. meeting the numbers, but and you have to answer to more people, and that's a challenge. But yeah. it also helping companies grow if they manage it right you know it's predicated on growth but i think as yeah. our industry learned the hard way you know everybody ran into those similar situations cash flow trending sales down like how do you manage huge payrolls yeah. um 
how many people do we all know that were laid off from the surf industry in the last 10 years? Crazy. Right? Globally. And in any, I mean, Pier 1, like closing 450 stores, like yeah. they were, they seemed strong yesterday. Yeah. yeah. Right? So, I mean, there's... All across the board in all, every category of stores. Yeah. Yeah. So there, so those are, everybody's dealing with that, but yet there's success mm-hmm. stories. That's it. Anyway, so he'll cut it out. Just positive. Oh, okay. But anyway, so yeah, it's a really dynamic world, and I think that it's great to see. I was really pleased by Brophy's just comments and how the engineering of the Longboarder Collector Club, where I've gone to a few of these, it's kind of fun to see what's out there, and they go to Surfing Heritage and tie-in, and to see that he bridged that in a way that that email that just came out last couple days. Super cool. Whereas, you know, longboard collector crews, like, they were so excited to be there, but yet understanding the legacy of what we all deal with. Like, for me, it was very close to home. I walked by two natural progression boards in perfect shape. Wow. And one, two different collectors had natural progression. I'm like, no way. Terry Mukoff, yeah. Jay Riddle, like, all the guys from Topanga in the heyday. Like yeah. there were guns, you know, like that was crazy. And I think Brophy is going to spend some time. We're going to try and get him connected with Surfing Heritage so that they can kind of do more wild things together to get the industry more educated on what's going on and yeah. what the real roots are in the stories and translating all that. Yeah. Because it's, you know, we got to keep the circle tight. Yeah. Yeah, I think events like that are really cool and it keeps the heritage going. Yeah. Right? Yep. Um, yeah. Yeah, because uh, I'm trying to go back and, <clears throat> and think of like how simple it was when you first started with Quicksilver, right? And then, you know, when, when I look at the pic, that, that photo you showed me of the office with like, <clears throat> what, 20, 20 some people? 29 people, yeah. Yeah. Um, and you get to that certain level and you're like, holy shit, we've got like a, a real business here, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, five years from, from that photo, <clears throat> how many more, you know, employees are there and how many more, you know, how much responsibility. Just, yeah. Because you went from a sales rep to a VP of sales. Yeah. Right. And you didn't. Hey, we didn't plan on it. It just worked. Yeah. And to give you a story on that, it, we used to have, when the company got pretty big, I remember. We were public at the time, and I remember going to the first Christmas party at the Hyatt that Bob planned, you know, for all the employees and their spouses. And I remember it was really weird. He was just kind of staring out when I walked up to say hi, and I'm like, hey, Bob, how are you doing? Merry Christmas. He's like, look at the responsibility I have. Look at all these people. Yeah. Like, it, it kind of was like at that moment, he's looking around and going, Wow, I'm providing for helping provide for all these families. Yeah, and it was really way. cool. Like it, it's just like, you know, to see people come together like that. Yeah. And and but for him to just flash on the fact that you, you got the seatbelt on. You're going day to day. You're running around doing your job, and all of a sudden you go, wow. Yeah. There there is a responsibility. And that's kind of like <clears throat> what's interesting and, and what I we like to point out about even just the the surf shops like Tony G. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. You know, he employs <clears throat> 10 people at the highest, uh, at, at, you know, in summer and Christmas, he's got 10 <clears throat> people on staff. And he's been around for 45 years. Yeah. You know, so think about how many kids that he's employed over those 45 years. Yeah. And like a company <clears throat> like Quicksilver, man, you know, like it's great as an individual to be the business owner, right? Mm-hmm. And you're like, okay, I own this business. And here we're selling this, we're doing this, we're doing this. But then, like, the real impressive thing to me is like, man, you've created something that's not just providing for you. There's like a thousand people on payroll. Well, yeah. it's like Bungers and Valserf. Like, yeah. there's a little rivalry there because the the day they both started is <laughs> is close. I remember Mark was kind of bummed when he was like, "When did the Bungers start?" Because I just went to their like fiftieth or whatever, you know, and. Um, but Mark has such a legacy with Valserve. How many reps in the industry came out of there? Came out of Valserve. Yeah. And and I think that's what's so cool is the picture that he has in his office of him, you know, crouching down with his dad and his brothers and you know, how hard is it? Who wants to learn to sand fins and surfboards <laughs> right now? Right. Like who's going to carry on that tradition of making boards yeah. and and doing all that and growing up in a surf shop and I think most of the people that I was dealing with towards the end of the era is like, hey, Tom, you know, the hardest thing is getting good employees yeah. that that want to that want to be the best they can be for the time they're there instead of like, hey, well, I'll do this for a week or a summer or whatever, yeah. and then I'll move on. And I think that that having that legacy where the dots are connected via family or, you know, the roots have gone together for so long that it's like at Surfside where you have Duke and his son and the family and Kathy and Paul and Claude, you know, yeah. like when it's all tied together, it makes it even that much more special. And yeah. when you see that even today, it's, it's so, to me, it's so cool. Yeah. Well, there's so many people that ask like, how did you get your job? How did you get in the industry? And you know, how do you know, like just whether they're younger kids or adults, you know, they're, they're just curious and it's, you know, it's it's a small, you know, it's a relatively yes. small industry and it's a, and a ghetto boy network. But, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people, you know, get their start in the surf shop, yeah. get to know how the business <clears throat> is run, what brands, how to sell. You know, you start learning all those those trades and then, you know, hopefully you start yeah. meeting people in the, you know, sales reps and sales managers start popping through. And yeah, yeah you start networking, you know, and at yeah. an early age, if you can. Yeah. No, and I'm. Now it's like trying, if you can get an intern job, that's better than applying. Yeah. And I mean, that's flipped about four or five years ago where we have, you have so many people like, hey, how do I get a job in here? What's it? And there's so many great applications online, however, and everybody looks great. But the people that intern that are willing to get in there, yeah. those are the people that ended up being hiring as you yeah, guys, yeah. being hired as you yeah. guys know. And I think that was a big change for people. Hey, I went to school. I did this and that, but yeah. the people that take it to that next level, yeah. you know, that show the commitment, and yeah. that was exemplified by a guy that was our spiritual leader for retail, which was a guy named George Cam in Hawaii. And if you didn't meet George, we had him. He was kind of the motivational, operational guru for all the retail stores in Hawaii. And George grew up under the coaching of John Wooden. And UCLA yeah. basketball gentlemen? Yeah. Okay. Like, in other words, he would tell the employees that 
if you're just sweeping the floors, be the best guy that ever swept a floor. Be the most attentive, show up on time, yeah. engage the customer, everything. His school of thought it was, I was so influenced by how he did things. that Made everybody feel special and made them yeah. do their best. So what, the best. What, it, what I did when, remember when Surfside moved up from the beach? Yeah. Okay. And I remember walking in the new store and we were helping Duke and Paul with, hey, do you carry boys? Do you not put this here or whatever? I remember going in after they were opening, I'm going, you guys are big time now. You're competing with South Coast Plaza. You know, like, you can have a kid behind the counter reading a mag and watching the movie in the boardroom. Yeah. And I go, you know what? I can't even tell who's working here. Yeah. You don't have name tags. Like, you know, how, hey, you want to do multiple sales and all this. And I'm talking to them about it. And they're like, and I go, tell you what, we're going to have somebody come visit you. I, I said, can you give us some time, like six o'clock at night, close early, we're going to bring a guy named George Cam in. And Duke's like, okay, hey, we're, we're game. Yeah. yeah. If you can help us, yeah. And <clears throat> so George came in and all the kids showed up. And there were, I think the one employee that had been there eight years was the only one. Everybody else had been there like a year or less or 90 days or whatever. And it was a great example. I'll skip forward. 1030 at night, George still has him engaged. He's teaching about how to hand off a customer, multiple sales. You know, if you see a lady walking around with a bunch of hangers, go help her out. Like yeah. all the fundamentals in retail that not everybody knew. And George is so good at that, that it was the next day, um, Duke called, goes, we did a $2,000 sale by handoff, <laughs> by following the grid pattern, the handoff, keeping the customer engaged, taking care of, anticipating their need. Like, it was a game changer. You still have this guy's number? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's the best. And so George, we were good friends. He's a big Laker fan. And um, oh, man. what's funny is... You have is, me a Laker fan. So I borrow him. I said, I finally said, hey, Brave New World, New Jersey, they've, they're legendary, right? Yeah, they've been yeah. there forever, right? And I go, hey, Bill, have you ever had a clinic... You ever had anybody come talk to you how to run the store? Because he has a huge store. I said, will you be game? I'm going to bring a guy out. You have all your employees come. We'll feed them lunch. We'll talk story. And we'll teach them to be better. And it's like, really? And they didn't know quite what to understand. But, but I said, hey, we'll give you some product and we'll show a movie, whatever. And so we flew George out. <clears throat> and a few of us went into town we rented a little ballroom in jersey right by the store they had all the employees like well over like 70 80 people easy they had never ever they don't even get a christmas party wow so it was really special and it was the comments we were getting were just so amazing but that was another thing that that quicksilver as a brand had that in our arsenal or yeah. in our ammunition box that you just wanted to help these guys be better at what they did. Yeah. They're going to sell more billabong and everything else, but it's like, if they're successful, we're all successful. Yeah. And I think, you know, we do a small one, which would be really fun in Hermosa Beach with Dickie and those guys. And that would be awesome. You know, and Jay Lightburn, nobody funnier than Jay and George Cam, come talk to him for a little while. So we did a few of these little deals that really help people understand and focus on what they should focus. Yeah. But that were, 
we did it Dave Nash in San Diego, same thing. And he's just going, God, this is great. He goes, that's my biggest thing is getting employees, but keeping employees. And when they're there, helping them understand why they should be proud of what they do, regardless of what level they're at, because it's going to be that cornerstone of what makes them progress. Yeah, it's funny. Customer service is, I mean, that's what's going to keep the core retail alive as well as, you know, investing in new upcoming yeah. brands and being different, but man, customer service is like so important. Jay and I come from the school of HSS. Of yeah. course, and which is a good one. Aaron Pie definitely helped instill some of the, you know, methodology or, or like philosophies that we have, you know, customers gold, customer come first, service with yep. a smile, yep. all those things that, you know, made us what we are today. And it's, you mentioned a lot of great shops that are out there that are, you know, implement the same, you know, ideas that are successful, you know, and it, it's, it's, uh, it's simple things, but like not everybody does it. Yeah. Yeah. It it starts from the top and, you know, you got to have good leadership, you know, and it's not rocket science. It's just, you know, it's just giving appreciation to your employees, making sure that they're, they're, you know, they're, they're part of the big picture and making them feel like part of the, part of the brand family, family, like create that family. Yeah. You'd be surprised how many shops I ran into that you didn't see that. Yeah. And, and that you, you'd at least try to do a clinic, but we'd get our reps to do it one-on-one anyways. Hey, they'd buy the pizza and the beer and you know, everybody does that now. You yeah. got to explain your $120 jeans or whatever. And, yeah. but, but that goes back to that first clinic I ever did yeah. that I'm like, why am I doing this? This, yeah. But then you walk out, you're going, God, this ah, is brilliant. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, to make all the employees, but you'd be surprised how many people don't do that. They're, they're so busy just keeping up and complaining about their neighbors and who's on sale and everything else that they, wait a minute, tune in your crew. Yeah. To make them feel special and they'll pass that on. And, you know, take one of the guys surfing one day, whatever, you know, whatever it is, you know, and I think that's where I'm so, I'm so excited to see, hey, who gets to fly in the Vans jet to North Shore this year? no kidding, right? And who gets to... Retail royalty. But, but that's what's cool. It's like, hey, everybody's trying to, they're acknowledging how it's so connected in every dynamic and that, hey, where the company's can afford to do things, big or small, Yeah, it's so cool. Or when... Willie used Willie used to get, you know, fresh fish, and you know, get it get it all pickled, and then like hand that out as gifts instead of buying somebody a coffee mug. You know, yeah. you're like, that's that's what's you know going Unique above and, and beyond. Yeah, and, per, more and, personal. Yeah, and it, and I think that's what's cool, and where the stores can translate their story all the way down to the floor. Those are the yeah. ones. So, a couple of things that I I wanted to ask about. So. Uh, you know, there's different milestones in, in Quicksilver and in, in the industry, right? Like Roxy, mm-hmm. right? That was such a, I mean, you're part of, you were working there when Roxy came out, right? Mm-hmm. Like, how crazy was that? Um, yeah, it was one of the. Addition to the Quicksilver umbrella. I'd, yeah, I'd almost argue it started in Huntington on the north side of the pier at a contest. Tower 2. And it was, and it, and it was, you were, you were probably there. And some of our designers threw on the board, the men's board shorts. 
and they came down and they were like, you know, like, these are cool. Let's make it cool. Let's, how do we, you know, like there was an inspiration, but part of it came from also that diversification is really important. You know, like Bob and everybody went through, you know, the, the late eighties, early nineties when, you know, recession and everything was tough. And, you know, part of the challenge for a lot of brands in the, in the eighties were guys were going out of business. They weren't diversified enough. And that was one of the things Bob said, Hey, we're going to make more products. We're going to do kids. We'll do it in a good way. Hey, we're going to expand and women's and girls has always come up. We knew there was a market, but when they really started wearing the guy's board shorts, then I think the light bulb went on. The hardest thing in the world was trying to come up with a name and that wasn't registered and licensed somewhere on the planet. And that was the funny part. The irony is I think Roxy and we had a lawsuit with a company in Canada that owned this. They made furs and dresses or something and they owned Roxy in Canada. And I think in Europe it had to be called Roxy Life because there was some trademark thing in Australia, the same thing. So they didn't get the Roxy McKnight or the Roxy in Hollywood or like all the Roxy kind of connotations. It was like was encumbered from the beginning because we couldn't use it universally around yeah. the, the world. And that was pretty unique. Um, but, you know, everybody knew that there's a market there, how to tap into it. Yeah. And the girl designers were, you know, really a catalyst in terms of getting that moving. But there were a lot of discussions on how, and I remember there was a little Roxy dress we made and the swimwear, I think I still have the early poster it was really swimwear. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, it was really cool. But oh my gosh. Who came up with the logo? Well, just, yeah, I was just going to say the logo was just two. the heart. Two, it was flipped. You That's know. a good question. Flipped. And the real story is um, in Europe, Quicksilver had a bunch of distributors, right? And they represented, you know, hey, we're doing all of France and there's German. And then Scandinavian countries had a different guy. And they were distributors for Quicksilver yeah. products. Well, the Turkish distributors who also represented Russia were a husband and wife. And the wife basically went, wait a minute, that's cool. That's where that the, the heart came together from. Huh. That. It's really random that people would always ask that. And it yeah. was kind of one of the clinic questions that we'd, yeah. we'd go through is where yeah. the logo, how did it come the up Turkish with the heart? From Quicksilver. Yeah, okay. and they, they came up with that idea of just throwing it the two perfect. together. But there were a lot of a lot of the brand Quicksilver brands around the, the world, you know, would play with the logos and do different designs and they tried to keep control on things. And then that was one that just went, you know, but yeah. that was when it was big and more complex. And, you know, why did Vulcan pick Vulcan? Why did Ruka pick that name? Yeah. You can't license anything you Sorry, can think yeah, of yeah. That, that's, you know, like outer known and you remember the brand prior, you know, like everything's somebody's got it somewhere in the yeah. world. Yeah, it's it's got to be difficult these days. But Roxy was a natural brand here, and everybody goes, "Oh, Bob, it's after Bob's daughter," you know, and you know. So it's really fun. It was great. Is Bob's that it, daughter named Roxy. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> so I didn't know, and she's still working there today. How funny. Yeah, and so everybody used to go, "Oh, it's named after the Roxy up there," and Danny, and you know, like it's just kind of a hip, cool name, and yeah. it just it just kind of stuck here. And I think we had to 
they had to do a bit of selling to other parts of the world to really explain what that meant. Yeah. But it's, it was Roxy it's Life. It's crazy how it was created. <clears throat> and you had like the best Female athlete. Sport. To, to to be the face of the brand at the the right time of yeah the, yeah yeah you Lisa, know, right at its inception you had Lisa Anderson who just, was the best freaking surfer on women's surfer first, on the planet first and she was yeah right pretty and you know yeah pretty yep. feminine and she she had the Tom Curran style she surfed like a guy yeah first girl not not in a bad way like yeah. with Check rail style. flow style like yeah. everything well it was Margot before that. Yeah. yeah. And I remember surfing with Margo at Rincon and she dropped in on anybody. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that vividly. But yeah, no, that that was a good catalyst. And I think that's what's so cool around the world is it, it translated well because the, the market was the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. You know, and then I mean Roxy ended up doing more volume in shoes than anybody dream of. You like just random categories that, you know, the brand was just amazing. So. It was, you know, coming from HSS, I worked at 15th Street, right? And it was funny because, like, yeah, Quicksilver, Billabong, all those brands got you. We're already going, Stussy. But it, it, it wasn't, it was still early in the game. It was like 89, 90, mm -hmm. early 90s. And then when... I guess late nineties the industry just started freaking going doubling up. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And all the women's brands started popping up. And like, you know, we got rid of fifteenth street and now we're on Main Street. And yes, me and but in the beginning though, when the pier was uh wasn't built yet, remember it was broke? Yeah. I remember when the pier finally I don't know what year that was, I think ninety two or something like that. 91. But the pier finally got redone, mm -hmm. and I was standing out front, all these <clears throat> hundred thousands of people, and they cut the ribbon, right? And people started walking on the pier, and I was thinking, what the hell is the, what's the, what's so special about walking the pier? You know, like, yeah. who cares? Like uh -huh. you're just walking on a, you know, on Concrete top of the ocean. Slab, like, yeah. what's the big deal? Yeah, because there's thousands of people. Walking yeah. up and down. And ever since then, Main Street became a right. destination. Totally. You know, like that's when we started seeing, <clears throat> you know. It was changing. $20,000 days. Yeah. You know, like yeah. I was like, holy shit, like business turned on. Because before that, right, you'd have Luis's restaurant, you had the movie theater, but yeah. at 7 o'clock, the place was dead. Yeah. And if you build it, it, they will come. And, and you know, when <clears throat> Servant Sport got that location and, I mean, it was, what, every six months they knocked out a business yeah. and went through and added a new Look room. Look how you guys expanded. I mean, who would have thought? Yeah. You know, there's a Were men's the area. There's a good kids. Club? Yeah. Yeah. In the, so. in the very, in the very beginning, well, actually, right? technically, the very first was in Santa Cruz with oh, John really? Griffith. Yeah, on, on uh, 41st. But that, he was a friend of the, the tribe and our rep up there, and he did a build out. And then, but HSS, yeah, that was like, that was kind of the destination. And it was so cool because, yeah, there was another one that popped up in Vail that was a friend of Bob's that wanted to do it. So there are a couple of random. FOB. 
Exactly. <laughs> that, that's been used a few times. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, that was one of the first ones. And, and um, nobody really knew, but it was to help translate the story. Yeah. You know, and look at, look at it today. And I mean, if I was that whole model, whether it's Jax or HSS now, it's like, hey, what do you what do you trade off? Like what's going on with Hurley or what's going on with this brand? Do you bring in Lululemon? You've got Patagonia. That's good. Like, how do you, how do you create that mix that is, is going to be unique and surfers are bridging the gap between adventure and travel and everything so that, Hey, like what's the evolution? And I'm hoping a lot of the shops are thinking about that, that they're not, stuck in the time warp that you know as that expansion happens yeah, this this what's going on in the industry what's going to happen could be in the a next really good thing yeah. versus yeah. a bad thing you know yeah, like, like if they that was like the big for me like, like that was one of the biggest things about <clears throat> the industry growing you know when i look back i'm like holy shit like that and everybody was... wanted their own shop and within a store yeah. and they were willing to pay yeah, yeah. right and yeah. and and whether it was the flagships, at least at Jack's or in Honolulu or whatever, but think how much that changed. It's, yeah. It changed that. It changed our store. Fighting over real estate. Fighting and over real estate and like who gets wine. what and yeah, yeah and and but yeah. it, you know, how do you keep your own store's identity and yeah. not become, you know, a circus? Yeah. That was always our complaint when you. I remember the best example was in the heyday. There were people that walked into Jack's Huntington all the time in HSS, and they know that Jack's was never really merchandise, right? It was just in there. But they went into, the same person went into down at uh, Corona Del Mar, Jack's. They walked in, no idea it was Jack's. Yeah. Because it was so well merchandised. Yeah. When they opened that store, it was like a game changer for them. You know, but it, they it, they finally went, oh, okay, hey, we can, we can do this too. Yeah. But there were so many people that it goes back to retail math. Yeah. And it, that played a big part into it. People that were smart were like, hey, do you want the brands to control the look of your store? Or do you want to control the look of your store? Yeah. Hobie took a different ta- path. And I remember when they built the store in, in Dana Point, redid that five years ago, six, 10. Yeah, it's a beautiful store. There were no brands. Yeah. They're called out very it's more like a Nordstrom sense mm-hmm. of discovery. Yeah. You, you, you stumble on things you recognize and like, and they're merchandised and mixed with something else. Yeah. And it's all organic product and driven versus brand driven. Exactly. You know, like they would merch. They were the opposite ends. Yeah. Right. And both work and it's they just, both work, yeah. but the sales staff there is huge. They have a long legacy of keeping people like HSS and some of the other ones in Val. And, but that was always the fine print is, how do the store owners sit around and go, hey, this guy wants to give me a shop. Yeah. But how big do I want to make it? And when Surfside, I remember when they moved up on the hill, they were like, can we charge for windows? I'm like, yeah, you should. Don't be greedy, but yeah. you should. Yeah. And they're like, really? I mean, it felt uncomfortable for them. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, that's just how they were. They're yeah. so pure. And at the same time, it's like, no, it's kind of the way of the world, you yeah. guys. And Everybody likes you, and more importantly, you pay your bills almost better than anybody we know. Yeah. Yeah. So why shouldn't you get that support? Yeah. And and so that all ties back into it. And a lot of the other people, I used to joke, especially in the east coast, east coast there's some legendary shops, 
and I remember going into the financial people and just going, you know, the best image accounts, the one we like, the ones we think are the most important are usually the worst paying. Yeah, for <laughs> There's sure. a couple exceptions, but yeah. that's just how it's always rolled. Yeah. And you got to be really personal to get in there to go, hey, Les, I know you're in Hawaii on vacation, but I found you. Give me yeah. a check. Yeah. You know, just let's keep people happy. You know, right. and, yeah. and, and, and that's and the I juggling think, act of uh, retail and wholesale. So it goes back to the retail space like, hey, Valsurf needs to keep their image and the Valsurf image. And they're so dedicated with their staff that all the brands want to have a piece. And uh, but, you know, it's like it's a really delicate balance. And I think right now is a really important, important point in time yeah. for all the shops to think about that, especially anybody yeah. that's in a mall. Obviously, yeah. they're already feeling it. But how do you make yourself more about HSS? And you guys, everybody's done a great job with private label there. Private that label was, that's it's definitely a, helped most shops stay in business definitely. most re recently. And the heritage brands that, you know, usually are <clears throat> a higher price point and or can offer you those terms needed and mm -hmm have a little bit better of a support system than yeah. the kind of new emerging brands that really you're just taking a huge risk on and yeah. hoping that it's going to you know, pay off. No, and I think that's, that's the tough part. I think yeah. that that was a, it was a challenge for years for, for any brand to try and penetrate you know, most of the big markets and most of the big shops. Yeah. And I remember um, Eric from Tadic. You know, he's a great guy. And my my daughter went to school with them at Loyola and they became friends. And I remember she goes, hey, will you just chat with him? They have coffee. And, you know, I meet him over at Cannes and chat. And I think he, he said it really well. He's like, Tom, I've been doing this for years. And I, I'm the shipper. I'm the marketing guy. I'm the sales guy. I do it all. And he goes, you know, I'm trying to get into Surfside. And Duke goes on you know, publicly saying, hey, I want to support any of the new brands. I want to give them a chance. They don't ever buy my line. You know, and, and, and he was just, he's the nicest guy, but he was just so patient. But he was just like, and I want to make board shorts. I'm like, Eric, don't get hung up on that category. It's not a profitable category, I no. should think. But I remember he was always just trying to penetrate doors. Everybody liked him. He made good product. But do they need that brand? Yeah. Mm. And ironically, his women's business was super strong. Yeah. And then when Incipio helped him out, he was still coming in going, hey, I want to do board shorts now. And now they got this. I'm like, dude, you killed it. Yeah. You just killed it. So like, think about, you know, yeah. but it was like watching the smaller brands trying to get in the door. It's really hard. Like you said, there's a risk, yeah. but hey, the store has a responsibility to also try things that are fresh and new. Yeah. yeah. And I think that, you know, it's almost like they have to have a reserve set aside to kind of spotlight things. Yeah. Hey, why is everybody doing a pop-up shop in Lido Village? Yeah. Gwyneth did a, one of her deals down there forever and had, what's her name, the designer, Cynthia Rowling, you know, wetsuits. And you're like, whoa, here it is, you know? Mm. And it's like pop-up shops. And you want to rotate brands in and out almost. You want to see them go away almost to help build the demand and they come back. Yeah. You know, you could argue that 
that's that's one of the ways to American Rag was really good at that. It started with Fred Siegel years ago, and those guys were awesome. And we used to sell to Fred Siegel, and I remember that was just blew my mind every time I walked in there. Yeah. And this guy Ron Robinson was, they were just wizards at putting things together that nobody thought of. But then you have a luggage store next door, yeah. just luggage. You're like, what? You know, that, that's like true curated retail, right? Yeah. And, it, and, and it's, they knew everything on the floor. The, the owners were active on the floor. Yeah. And that's important to Do me. <clears throat> trip out on how our industries change. Mm-hmm. Like, even, even just like what's sold in our, in our brick and mortar stores. Mm-hmm. Like, who would have thought that you'd be selling Yetis? I know. In a freaking or, or, or water bottle. Razors, yeah. Yeah, you no. Know, like all that shit. Like, I agree. Yeah. We all wondered, but it's like the barriers are broken down between retail. You can walk into Ace or you can walk into Surfside. Where do you want to buy your Yeti cooler? Yeah. Right? Gents, I got to go. Yeah, yeah, no, that. Um, but sorry, do, way I, too long. No, no, <laughs> it's not you. I have a. Um, He's got a water polo tournament. Yeah, my daughter's water polo tournament. Oh, how old? Uh, oh, she's at Edison, a sophomore. Oh, awesome. And uh, they have CIF semifinals. Um, we'll get over there. Yeah. That's a big deal. Big, big, yeah. important. Family. Uh, wrap it up. You'll wrap it up. Yeah. Lennon's got this, you guys. Family first. Um, don't run it short on my behalf. Yeah. Hey, pleasure. Thank you so much for oh, this no, time. And, and my pleasure. Yeah, That's I hope fine. to. Uh, yeah, learn more. I'll about have to what follow you. a podcast now. Do it. Yeah, okay. you have to. All right. Thank you, guys. Cheers. So, a couple more cool little questions. Um, what's the best surf trip you've ever been on? And I'm sure you've been on many. There's Tabaru always comes to mind, and it, and it does because of the people there. Of any any place, we were lucky enough to get down there in the '80s, and we were the first group to go with Bob and Quick and. <clears throat> The Fijians are the friendliest people in the world. Wow. I don't know. And, and, you know, of all the places we've traveled, that always pops up. And if anybody ever thinks about going to Fiji, I always go, you just got to go. No matter where you go in that area, it's, it's pretty magical. But you know what? I really, I have a fondness to Canada. And I've been fortunate to get some amazing waves up there, courtesy of Raf Brewweiler and a few friends. But, um, you know, on both sides? Tofino is, if you haven't been to Tofino... That's British Columbia, right? I call it Waikiki of Canada. Wow. There's more girls learning to surf than probably guys. There's there's at least four or five girl-only surf camps where they're hiking out of trees and wetsuits, jumping in cold water and learning to surf in closeouts. <laughs> and it's just a magical place and a destination, but outside of it, there's a lot of amazing... Why did Rip Curl decide to go up there for the search? Yeah. I was lucky enough to get up there in 1999, and it's a really special place. And, um, you know, there's outer islands up there that are, you know, on the radar a little bit now, and you can get to, but it's a really special place. And it's just, you know, where the snow meets the beach with, with the forest in between, you don't find a lot of those around. Yeah. And, and an uncanny amount of coastline. And, you know... The eastern coast of Nova Scotia in particular has so much history, but, you know, it's not about the water temperature. It's about, you know, the people that you end up meeting and hang out with. And, you know, those experiences are crazy. They're pulling in Nova Scotia. They're pulling 
five to seven hundred pound tunas <laughs> out of the water right by where you drive by and and right off where you're surfing and you can go in at the end of the day after a session on your way back to the town and you've passed four or five perfect point breaks and then you see a tuna head you know the size of half a car Wow! and you know it just you know those those places are pretty good but we're just lucky that hey there's wave pools now you can go to and yeah. have that experience and you know, it's really neat to see the evolution, but it's easy to get to some of these special places. And if you always show up with Aloha, yeah, you know, you're going to have a great time. Yeah. Have you been to the Mentalize? No, I went to Bali way back with Bob and Jeff. And part of the reason I got hooked on Tavi was when we were full bore working at, at Quick, it's a perfect 10 day, like, you, you get on the plane at 10 o'clock at night, you're paddling the next morning by yeah. noon. And to go travel to those reaches, it takes you like two weeks to get there almost. <laughs> so I always was like very focused on I could get in and out and be back in enough time not to be buried with work. Yeah. So with my work obligations, Tavarua became special and being able to go there on, on Boothie's trip and you know, so many of the guys um, over the years, um, Robert Gerard's and the Quicksilver trips for Thanksgiving. And, you know, there's so many people that have those weeks that I was lucky enough to get down there with the family a few yeah. times. And that so was a good time. How many times have you been to Tavi, you think? Over 30. <laughs> you bastard. So I, it's like we haven't been there in years. And then I run into Dave Clark up north a lot and, and you know, so when are you going back? And I think it's being a grandpa now and all that, it's going to happen soon. Yeah. So um, when the kids are old enough. Um, have you tried foiling yet? No. I was under a lot of pressure in Maui from some friends in particular. And um, we spent a lot of time in Maui with our family living there. And my best buddies in the SUP world pretty much converted. So I had nobody to... <clears throat> they're all like, you got to try it, you got to try it. So I've yet to try it. I think at my age, I enjoy all the sports I do. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm intrigued. But when I watch somebody that's really good, it's it's it looks, inspiring. It looks amazing. It's amazing. And over there, there are so many places that it works really well. Yeah. But, you know, it's you not meant... hurt, though. Yeah, it's yeah. not meant for certain places and certain beaches and i think some of my friends over there robbie nash you know there's and todd bradley i mean on oahu yeah there's a lot of guys learning at diamond head but it's not really cool to be out at anywhere in waikiki but right. there are guys that are out there and it's the ones that go out aren't really aware how dangerous it can be to the other people yeah, yeah. and i <clears throat> so it's it's amazing sport and i think it's opened up a lot of doors but it's What's pretty fun to watch is a guy that got into it, took him, he lives in Maui, born and raised surfing. Luckily, he had Dave Kalama teaching him. He said it took about three weeks before he could learn to really float and fly, right? Mm. And now his latest, this is six months later, he's like, I don't even like to ride waves anymore. <laughs> he goes, it was so hard. He used to do all the downwinders in Maui on, on long paddle boards. And he goes, it took me five tries to make it on a, a regular foil down. But he goes, once I figured it out, it's magical. Yeah. He goes, I'm flying, you know, 10 miles, going like 17 miles an hour average, you know? And 
he goes, it's the craziest thing. I don't even want to surf on it. And I think it's opened all the doors and it's it's so incredible to see. We're going to see more and more stuff. I mean, you can buy a motorized one and go out of Newport Bay <laughs> if they let you, right? Yeah. I don't think I want to do that, but I definitely want to try it someday. The more I talk to people about it, the more intrigued I am with it, you know? Yeah. I'm with you. It's like I'll be around. I've surfed guys with guys in Hawaii that, you know, all the time and they're next to me on a, on a foil and they're having a great time. And yeah. I've watched people try for the first time next to me too. And it's scary. Living. Yeah. <laughs> um, what, I know I'm jumping around a little bit, but okay. um, what's the best advice that you could give to our listeners about success in life? Well, I think family always comes first. But just, you know, be respectful and cherish the relationships that you have, both, you know, personal and professional. And, you know, have fun. You know, we're all here for just, it's really a special place and a special industry to be able to do what you love mm -hmm. and to make a, a career out of it. Yeah. Like, how does that happen? Yeah. So I think that, when you can find what you really enjoy doing, try and pursue things along that. And, you know, it may be a harder trek, but you're going to find that that can be really special. Yeah. So live with Aloha. I mean, yeah. it's 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 helped me. And, and uh, like I said, our family's been blessed with an amazing career at Quicksilver. And, you know, the friends you make and, and those experiences, it's like, Hey, someday I'll write a book, but I gotta find my notes. Yeah, you definitely need to write a book. Um, <clears throat> what's your thoughts on? I mean, not just the Olympics, but we'll talk about the Olympics. But how crazy? You know, we've talked about a bunch of different things here, but how crazy the industry's changed and just like surfing's changed, right? Yeah. Like yep. we have wave pools. And and I don't know about you, but when we first saw that, you know, we've seen wave pools that weren't wave pools. They they were called wave pools, but they sucked. Yeah. Or they looked fun, but not really. Yeah. Right. And then when we saw that, whenever was that 2015 when yeah that first video of Kelly's wave was breaking and it was all dark brown. Yeah. But it was perfect, right? Like holy shit! Like yeah. And you, you know. You've surfed around the world, and, and it's, when you first saw that, you're like, what? It's been a long time coming. I mean, I the first wave pools were over 20 years ago that that we were introduced to at Quicksilver with different people approaching us. Um, you know, Ron John tried to do one. There, there were all kinds of guys that were trying to engineer the one. The Disney one, you know, going back to Tempe before that, That's think how old that is now. Yeah. But it worked. And... But the technology was so much further removed than anybody realized. So it's been fun to be on the sidelines yeah. and watch it. I remember going to a meeting at the MGM in Vegas because they were building a wave pool and they wanted to talk about brands and marketing and how they do it. And it was years ago and I remember they showed us the, the area <clears throat> and um, it's right where the hotel and I don't know what it is now. I can't remember Mandalay. And anyways, 
when they tested their wave thing, they, they were bragging about how they can make a four or five foot wave. Nobody thinks about the disbursement of the energy. Yeah. That's the key to the whole thing. And they built this beautiful beach resort thing with chairs and bars and everything, and they tested the wave and just wiped it out. <laughs> There's a, a and they never launched it. They never launched it afterwards. They kept it a little ripple pool. Yeah. And I mean, it goes back to all the stories. Ron John was going to build that park in Orlando, and you know, I think Quicksilver was the first brand with Keckley's help. We were able to secure renting out Typhoon Lagoon at Disney, mm. and again, we'd take customers there, and. Uh, we're all blown our minds. Like this clear thing's coming at you as you have, wait your turn inside this huge toilet bowl and it's coming at you diagonally over your head. <laughs> and it's hard to see and pick it out and you drop in and you're like, wow. Like, like that was the feeling. Yeah. They captured the feeling. That wave was the real deal. And if you got the first wave of the sash, it was really good, but they could make it a right or a left or a peak and there was something there. And everybody, Kelly, everybody was there riding that thing. And we'd rent it out at night, and then that was kind of the regular routine once the park closed. But same thing. We would wipe out the beach during the day that the people sit at, and then they crank it back down during the day. So the technology was there, and then, you know, the flow rider in San Diego. Yeah. Like, I almost killed myself. I had to have a cocktail before I tried it, but <laughs> Pat Artukovic was, he was like there every day. He was like, he lived right down the street and he was like, he could smoke a cigar and ride the thing. And I remember after I fell and got slammed a few times, this couple was sitting there in the bar overlooking it and they went, you're the oldest guy I've seen try that. <laughs> <clears throat> but um, anyways, I walked away, so that was good. And and I wanted to see Kelly's deal in, in person because we at Quicksilver, we had all these models developed that Kelly was there and the donut and all that stuff. So just to see after all those years, something that really worked, yeah. there was a real wave was just, it's pretty amazing. And I think, why not? Yeah. And, and it's going to bring surfing maybe in a controlled manner, but that's not a bad thing. And especially for the Olympics, I think it really works. Yeah. It's so challenging for the WSL to drive around the world with their whole deal and make sure that the criteria for the waves is good enough to have the event. Yeah. And maybe that's part of the mystique, but when you can actually compete on a uniform scale, that will make a subjective sport like surfing, yeah. just like skateboarding could be, I think even more appropriate for a wider audience yeah. to view and build the sport. So I'm all for it. Yeah. And thanks, Fernando, for pushing it so yeah. hard. And I hope they get one built in time for Tokyo and, you know, because I hate to have them go to Chiba Beach. Yeah. So it's, it's going to be interesting. Hopefully yeah. the elements come together and, and there's ways for the first Olympics. But I think there's people that I was at the, the same trip with up at in Linmore, you know, in our lifetime to be able to see and experience that. Oh my God. That's awesome. That's awesome. And I mean, it, it's expensive. When, when did you finally go? We went in uh, oh, October. This past October. October? Yeah. It was cool. supposed to be July, but my son was got a sponsorship, so to speak. And then I knew the guy, too. And he's like, hey, I don't like going right, so you go right for me and just jump in on the first tee. So it was, it was fun being there on a stand-up. And, and uh, 
it's a it's a real wave. I yeah. didn't I didn't move fast enough in my first one. I was like, oh, this is cool. Made the drop and just whack. And and it's so it's pretty amazing to see how well they can duplicate. It's only going to get better and better. Yeah. And I think that it really will. The price will get more competitive. Yeah. As things get developed, but they'll become destinations. And hey, why not? It's our industry's type of destination, yeah. anyways. You want to fly on a plane and spend a bunch of money and. You want to make sure there's, you know, waves in Salvador or Costa Rica whenever you go, right? Yeah. And you could argue that you'll be able to go to some pretty cool places and get surf out. And how many people are going to Austin right now? Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's going to be interesting when Kalani Rob and Josh Kerr's, there's going to be two pools out in Palm Springs. Yeah. Right? And, and then, Australia's online and Ireland and... Yeah. Yeah. And then in Austin, yes. <clears throat> They're going to expand on it. Uh, yeah. Yep. So that's going to be, it's a, it's a trippy time for surfing, you know, because it seems like there's way more surfers in the world. Yeah. And it doesn't seem like there is, right? Uh, but yet the surf industry is still kind of struggling, mm -hmm. right? So hopefully with wave pools, with the uh, Olympics, I think it'll help the industry, you know? I think it'll broaden the industry to it makes surfing within reach of a lot more people around. Yeah. There's a friend of mine named Warren that runs a store called Easy Rider up in Canada. And what's funny is there's the biggest mall in the world was in Edmonton. They have, we used to joke that they kept the Canadian Navy there because they have submarine rides and they have more submarines there than the Navy in Canada has. <laughs> we used to tease him, he loved it. But he would rent out the wave pool all the time for his friends, especially stand up paddling and to teach surfing. And the mall worked with them as a local retailer to do that. And that was going back a few years. And um, he did an amazing job of bringing surfing to the middle of Canada. Yeah. So I think, you know, it can only help. And yeah, there's people that won't want to spend the price, but there's going to be ones that are more affordable. and. I think why not? You know, in the way the world's going, if they can make a successful business venture out of it, guy, hats off. Yeah. You look at the investment that the Kelly and the partners put in to get this thing going, and then hey, when that breaks, it's like another five to ten million to fix it. Yeah, I mean, it, I think people when they really get there and understand it and look at the machinery involved, you're like, whoa! It's yeah. like a power plant. It's a modern marvel. It's a, it's like a freaking yeah power yeah. plant. So you, I mean, you you could you could have one in Huntington for that matter, and I'm sure it would be crowded. Yeah, it's a trip that first way when you when you that whole experience when you drive through the gate. Yeah, and then you walk out to the to the flat patio, pond. you know. Yeah, to the house, and you're sitting there overlooking the pool, and you see how far back it goes, and you're like. And then that left starts coming at you. Yeah. And you hear the train going. You're like, wow. <clears throat> it's so different surfing towards a fence. And in other wave pools I've been at, you're usually riding away from things. Yeah. And it's just the whole mechanics and all that. It's it's amazing. And, I, and watching all the guys that surfed it all day, I was in, only in the water for a little while. I just wanted to watch it. And by lunchtime, when the people are connecting it, you know, it's it's so awesome. Yeah. And and you're watching guys put it together and go, oh, okay, I get it. Yeah. You know, and and you can you can really appreciate it is challenging. And I think 
to make it work all the way through, you know, yeah. you saw how excited people were getting. Yeah. Yeah, it's a dream. Yeah. It's a dream come true when you get a... And more, more and more people tried to rationalize it when you're having that beer and having dinner at the barbecue afterwards going, okay, wait. How do, wait, I, get, how do I, I get back here? It's the, yeah, how do I get back here? And I don't mind that Indian casino. It's actually not bad. And, and uh, wait, Tavi would cost this. And <laughs> if I get enough people and divide by seven, yeah. So yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, it's, I think it's a game changer. And that one really puts it on the map globally. And I think that it's a perfect vehicle to enhance the Olympics for surfing. Yeah, I agree. So going back to Quicksilver, you were there for 35 years. Mm -hmm. what, what, what happened after that? I mean, what, what did I do after yeah. that? Or I think the biggest thing is that we were saddled at the time with millions and millions in, in debt from the Rossignol deal. Yeah. <clears throat> and I think it was... It was a great time. I was lucky and blessed that it was a perfect time to retire. And I felt fortunate that I got a, a very special send off by Bob and the crew. And, you know, there were, it was tough because there's a lot of people getting laid off at the same time. Yeah, and I think yeah. that I was uncomfortable in part because of, because of that. But at the same time, there were so many amazing friends. And, you know, it gave me a chance to spend time with my family that there were a lot of times I wasn't around that in our work I tried to make short trips where the Australian Australians were famous for being gone for a month at a time because yeah. it takes them two days to get anywhere yeah. and I always try to make it four to seven days max wherever I went just yeah. to to be with my family and and I think that getting back and having the time and <clears throat> I've got a lot of hobbies besides trying to get healthy. Yeah. I ate a lot of big fat dinners over the years and I had my share of lunches. And when you're in the office, you're like, okay, it's one o'clock. Where are we going to lunch? Yeah. And every now and then you'd surf and paddle and do all that. But, you know, then you save your time to go on a surf trip. So being able to really, you know, travel with Gail and the family and, and having grandkids, that's my new job. Nice. Um, we have another grandkid on the way with Tommy and, and Britt and uh, you know we have five-year-old rally over in Honolulu so you know I've got a, a few other projects that I've learned I have higher education and uh, commercial uh, real estate that I'm learning about and some other things but it's all related to family and it's all good nice so um, but yeah I still have my vices I still play with cars and have a crew that does that and there's a lot of cro crossover in the surf car thing, which is really fun. Yeah. And uh, other than that, trying to stay healthy. As you yeah. get older, that's the key is try I to eat better. I told you, man, you look healthier than I've ever seen you. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. And and again, it's like when you're in that work zone for so long, you know, you're on a plane and you really can't take care of yourself and you're enjoying the good wine and meals with friends yeah. and it catches up with you. So it's nice <laughs> to be able to have that luxury of... of time and discretion in what you eat take, and being a little pickier yeah. yeah and trying to stay healthy so that's and catch up with friends it's really fun to you know i caught up with somebody from quicksilver that i hadn't seen in over a year last week and you know it's just there's so many connections that are out there yeah. so i try to make myself available for anybody that reaches out that wants to have a coffee because i'm 
still pretty addicted. I'm, I'm still pretty addicted to coffee and yeah. chatting it up. Um, so that's always fun. Yeah. Um, any interest in getting back in the industry or? Hey, I'm happy to consult <laughs> or do anything, but most of it's been for free and I'm, I'm fine with that. <laughs> and um, yeah, no, it's, there's some great things going on. Um, and uh, no, I've been behind the scenes in a, in a few things, but, but other than that, it's like, yeah, I, I enjoy my time. And, and like I said, the family and being active yeah. is, it's a blessing. And, it, and like I said, it's fun to reconnect with people that you never really had the time to do. Yeah. So That's awesome, man. Well, shoot, I think uh, we heard a lot of great stories from you today. Well, thanks. Uh, you kept me busy for a little while yeah. here. Yeah. Just well, kept me going. There's too many things to talk about. <laughs> well, thanks for your time. <clears throat> All right. Tom Holby Holbrook. Thanks, Lyndon. Thanks for having us. All right. All right. Late. Aloha. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the show. Please give us a five-star rating and spread the word. Special thanks to our good friends, James Williams for our awesome artwork and Justin Reynolds for the amazing music.